Welcome back to the Silmarillion Film Project. I'm your co-host, Dave Kale, and we have a very fun episode today. We're talking frame narrative, everyone's favorite moment uh, in each season that we do, where we get to uh, uh, be very innovative and come up with brand new stories involving Lord of the Rings characters. And this time, we have some excellent teenage melodrama <laughs> involving a young Estelle that we know we know our listeners are just going to absolutely love. <laughs> Don't you think um, Professor Corey Olson, one of our other two Corey, uh, other two co- co-hosts, That's excellent right. teenage melodrama. Huh? Excellent teenage melodrama. That's right. And and what do you think, other co-host Trish Lambert? <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly is uh, Adventures of Young Aragorn in a way. That's true. People have been clamoring for it. Now you get it. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And we, you know, we'll get we'll get we'll have time for more later on. I mean, one of the things we were discussing last week was, you know, how we have to be careful to kind of walk a line, right? On the one hand, we want to include fun stuff from the Lord of the Rings era in the frame narrative, but at the same time, we don't want to spoil anything that we might want to do in a like a full season, you know, when we get there down the road. So uh, you know, we have oh, to be shoot. a little bit selective. Yeah. So that's why we decided last week on the Fell Winter as a, 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 a sort of dramatic episode in that era. We had to shift the dates of it, of course. It happens a good deal earlier, and so we had to push it back later um, so that it would coincide with this and come right after the Hobbit, the Hobbit framework, uh, chronological framework, rather than uh, uh, during Bilbo's childhood, which is really when it was. But um, but anyway, so, you know, because we figured that's like, you know, like the fell winter was sufficiently dramatic that it would make an interesting sort of plot point within the frame. Um, uh, but it would not, you know, it's not like it's something that we would spend a huge amount of time on necessarily uh, in the in the in the later seasons. So, but yes, you know, it's it, it's 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 an intriguing balance because if we have nothing happen and they just sit around and talking all the time, we get into that you know the problem that we had uh, last year with the Arwen frame. You know, too much just conversation and nothing but conversation. Um, and uh, uh, and then this year we were at risk of uh, uh, having action in the frame, which would actually overshadow the action of the of the main uh, the main uh, episodes at certain points. So. Yeah, it's tricky. It's tricky. We can't win. Exactly. All right, so today we didn't quite finish up the frame last So we talked about the frame last time, didn't quite finish it up, and we want to come back and revisit that a little bit uh, and uh, sort of tidy up some things and some issues based especially on some contributions that you guys have made uh, on the discussion boards. Uh, and thanks, everybody, for their contributions there. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Um, So, uh, and then we're going to go on to a few creative challenges, uh, just, you know, we don't have anything quite as overarching again as we've had before. First two seasons, of course, were huge and trying to figure out some of the basics of how are we going to represent the elves and the Valar and stuff on screen. You know, we've had huge issues, uh, in the earlier seasons, having already established some of the framework for these things, we have fewer things to, uh, like that to think about this year. Uh, but there were a few issues that I wanted to talk about. I mentioned last time, you may remember, specifically Menegroth, why do the elves move underground uh, in the first place? Second, uh, the Helcaraxa. What happens in the Helcaraxa, and is there a way that we can make elves walking along and slowly getting hypothermia and frostbite interesting to watch? And then third, 
what's in what's going on in Angmar? How do we want to or not Angmar? Angband. How do we handle the? Uh, uh, how do we handle the the story, the bad guy's story? I wanted to talk about that a little bit more. Um, as we've talked about that some in the context of the outline of the episodes, but it's something almost like the frame narrative where I would like to kind of map out in advance a little bit more exactly how that storyline is going to go so that we can be thinking about how we want to weave that in. Um, to the main episode line, especially since, as we also mentioned last time, really the bad guy plot is kind of the glue that holds the two halves of the story together. We've got the Beleriand half of the story, and we've got the Noldor half of the story, and the only thing they have in common through season two is Melkor. Um, so the the bad guys really do sort of serve as a way to... Uh, uh, to combine those two. So I think that that's um, uh, clearly something we need to give a little bit more thought to. Last time, last season, we thought about the bad guy plot, but we didn't really think about sort of the plot arc, and uh, we didn't plan in advance. It was... Well, anyway, in our discussions here in, the, in, in our sessions, the discussion of the bad guys always got kind of pushed aside, so I want to make sure that we think that through first. So... That is the plan. Um, and uh, uh, today we have uh, um, the the only announcement I have at the beginning is I just want to uh, remind people to be looking at the fall courses at Signum. The Signum courses are, are uh, going to be beginning in a few weeks at the end of the month of, of August. Uh, and we have a couple brand new courses this term that I think people will be interested in. Uh, one is... Our new Intro to Germanic Philology 1. We have a two-semester Intro to Philology sequence. So uh, if you've ever been, real, you know, if you've studied, especially if you've studied some older languages, you know, and you're interested in what exactly is this philology thing that Tolkien did, uh, it's an opportunity to really dig into it and uh, get a chance to to. to see and understand philology uh, firsthand. Uh, the other is our North Myths, Norse Myth and Saga class. Um, uh, and uh, that's going to be really fun. That's, of course, that's all in translation. You don't need, no Old Norse is required for that class. Um, though it's taught by the same professor who did teach our Introduction to Old Norse class. So uh, you'll get a chance to, to study the Norse sagas uh, with uh, uh, you know somebody who's really immersed uh, in the Old Norse stuff. Um, so anyway, so that's going to be, so those, those are really great. And there's other fun courses too, my Chaucer class. And uh, uh, we're offering John Garth's Tolkien's Wars in Middle-Earth class, uh, the, the course which looked in-depth at Tolkien's World War I experience. Um, should be uh, uh, should be should be really great. So, yep, that is the so that is the announcement to make sure that you look into okay. our fall signum courses. Germanic philology—that's pretty awesome. It is pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. We have a full two semester sequence planned now, so that for people who want to study philology uh, at Signum, you can get the the two semester Germanic philology sequence, and then you can you know you can do our Old Norse cycle and our uh, Anglo Saxon cycle, uh, so that you can uh, you can be you know focusing on and developing those languages in particular. We may be adding uh, some other uh, you know one of our professors really wants to teach a class on on uh, Gothic and and Old High German and and that kind of thing. So uh, that would wow. be really, that'd be really fun, really hardcore, but uh, really fun. So yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. That's like the that's like the signum that should that should be a informal signum motto. Right. Really hardcore but really fun. Hardcore but fun. Yes, exactly. Hardcore but fun. That's it. Um, good. All right. So um, so let's get back to some film stuff. So the frame narrative. Um, so from what we did last time, um, I have. So let me let me advance my slide here. Um, so instead of uh, uh, putting up the full twelve step uh, synopsis, and uh, uh, Marielle was doing a lot of work on that. Thanks, Marielle, uh, for that. Um, uh, it was a little too much to just put up as a visual on screen. You can uh, you can see that uh, on our discussion boards. Um, I can give a, a sort of a summary of it, um, and it's so it's most it's you know, following Estelle, of course. Uh, Aragorn, he leaves. So we have him leaving Rivendell in episode one. And you guys, you know, Trish and Dave, would be interested to hear your comments on this because I'm more familiar with this than you because Trish had to leave early and Dave wasn't here last time. So you can, you guys can, you know, interested to hear feedback from you guys. Um, so he, he, he leaves. We have a rebellion thing. That parallel was really easy to do, right? That's in the same episode that Feanor is rebelling and leaving Valinor. Um, so the idea that, like, the 16-year-old boy feels like he is hemmed in a narrow place uh, in Rivendell and being kept in a gilded cage, uh, that, that, that parallel kind of wrote itself. Um, uh, episode two, he's discovered missing, and uh, Eldon and Elro here are sent off after him by Elrond. Um, we have, you know, Estelle in the wilderness, uh, possibly, uh, the suggestion was that he's, he's doing fairly well in the wilderness. Um, uh, I kind of am attracted to the idea of him not doing that well in the wilderness and, and, uh, needing to be rescued. But, you know, I, 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 it's fine. I don't have to make everybody a wimp at the beginning. Um, uh, episode three, the twins find him and he refuses to return and they agree so long as they can stay with him, which he kind of resents. Um, the whole thing has the winter background because, again, it's the fell winter that's coming on. Um, mm-hmm. We have the uh, uh, episode four with uh, the first snowfall and that's when they encounter the Dunedain. That's when they, they meet the rest of the Dunedain for the first time and Aragorn is a little um, uh, uh, shocked Uh because you know they they live very rough. You know he like goes into this sort of rugged gypsy community basically, and it's not at all what he expected. Um, uh, he was expecting a the the northern kingdom of the uh, well, of the some, descendants. yeah, something that looked a little more like the descendants of the kings of the north, basically. Yes, yes. and then didn't look like vagabonds exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, <coughs> I mean, because he's used to a pretty high standard of living, uh, Estelle is. So, I mean, we don't have to actually make him, you know, uh, all squeamish and over the top. But, um, uh, but he, um, well, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be primarily sort of a, a, a him being, you know, kind of fussy about it. It can, it can also be, you know, uh, um, shock and kind of, um, Concern over the, the the state of his people, right? So it's not just him being like, "Ooh, right. this is uncomfortable." It's more right. like, you know, what's become of my house? What's become of my people? Well, he doesn't. Right. I mean, he knows there is people, but of course, he doesn't know. Uh, okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. he. Well, see. So what he doesn't know, he doesn't know that he is the heir. 
Um, okay, yeah. So the fact that he is the heir is going to be known to Halberd, but not to Estel himself, and therefore right. probably not to Halberd's son either. I would think the younger generation would. This would be a fairly big secret that possibly only Halberd knows about. Um, right. And maybe a couple other of the, you know, like of the old companions of Aragorn's dad, basically. But, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So anyway, okay. So, um, but I, but again, I think, I don't think we have to portray him as being squeamish or fussy. It can be more, right, it can right. be more, uh, it, it can be more concerned about, the people, um, right. you know, and less sort of like, oh, uh, I don't want to live like this. Right. Sort of doesn't want anyone to have to live like that. Right. But shouldn't he be a li- at least a little soft? I mean, he's never yeah, he left can. Rivendell before. Right? Yeah. No, he can yeah. be soft, but he doesn't have to be, he can be soft, but he doesn't have to be, you know, too, I think he used to have a little bit, but like you said, it doesn't have to be over top. We can we right. can we can portray it as um, as as sim- somewhat sympathetic as well. Right. I right. mean, he's he hasn't been. Like, I assume he's been out with the tw- at least the twins, right? Elrond, like hunting, perhaps around. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Probably. Probably. Um, I mean, it kind of depends. So, that I would say that that decision is really. Um, that's a Gilrein decision, right? That is, we have to decide that about Gilrein. Is she, you know, because Gilrein could have said, could very plausibly say, like, like, no, I don't want him endangered in any way. So, like, she could have denied her permission for him to leave the valley. Um, and, I mean, he still has the run of the valley, and he still presumably will have been doing phys- – I mean, it's not like he's going to be a wimp. You know, he'll still be doing physical exercises, you know, and, 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 and even combat training. Um, but so, you know, he won't be hopeless. Uh, but, but as far as like surviving in the wild, I'm not sure um, if he's ever done that kind of thing before. Um, so are you thinking, because um, to me, it's like Elrond knows this guy is like the king. Part of me thinks that he would have included that kind of thing. I mean, he certainly will have been taught, like, you know, archery and, right. you know, combat stuff. But, um, so it's possible that Elrond would think, in fact, I mean, I'm kind of agreeing with you, like, well, I don't need to worry about the survival of the wild thing because the Dunedain are going to take care of that part of his training. <laughs> right. I mean, right. He could, you know right. what I mean? Or, you know, if you if you do have a conversation between Gil Ryan and Elrond at any point, you know, they could even, if we have them in this frame narrative, that could be like, well, you know, you didn't want him to do it, but he's got to do it now, so let the Dunedain train him or something like that, you know. Okay. Um, okay. So, yeah, that makes sense to where he wouldn't have done any of that stuff, right. that stuff, at, at Rivendell. Right. But, okay, no, I see. So the general, uh, uh, for those of you who are attending live, the general sentiment is that we shouldn't have Gilrein become that obsessive like he must never leave the valley kind of you know to to not have her be simply overprotective nick is reminding me that we had gilrein arguing when he was 10 you know that he needs to be prepared uh for his life and that makes sense to me um but of course the, the the reason i'm asking this is that we have we have to make this fit with both of their characters right because if gilrein is not overprotective then Aragorn's objections in episode one are going to look even more pettish, right? Um, if he were actually 
restricted. If he could never leave the valley, then he'd have a legitimate complaint, right? And then when he says, like, I'm hemmed in a narrow place and does his parallel to Feanor thing, um, it's more sympathetic, right? He does. He should go out into the wide world. If he is going out into the wide world with supervision and he's just like, I want more and I want to go out by myself, it makes him sound a little more pettish and uh, less sympathetic there. So... Which is fine. I'm totally fine with that. Um, we well, just we just need to decide where we want that to, to rest, if you see I, what I mean. I could see this having... I mean, I, I don't think we can backfill on this, but I could see this having been like a bone of contention between Gilrine and Elrond, you know, mm-hmm. from the early days, mm-hmm. which is, yeah, he needs to be trained, but I don't want him to go too far. So, I mean, I could totally see Elrond kind of like rolling his eyes and going, oh my God, you know, I just, like, this woman drives me crazy. Okay, how about if we have the El- the twins, like, train him, but just around the troll shots, you know, just... Right. I mean, just in the like, he can get him back home if he needs to, you know, from the woods, mm-hmm. um, knowing that you know at some point he's going to have to go with the Dunedain. You know, like he's going to like table the rest of the training for the Dunedain. So he get so he like placates Gilrine, doesn't necessarily completely do away with the training of you know preparation of Estelle. Right. But so it's a compromise. Right. You know, and then he knows the Dunedain are gonna be able to take care of the rest of it. I mean something like that, you right, know, right, where right. everybody stick keeps in their in their particular characters. Yeah, that that makes sense. And and as several people have said, you know, he could be more familiar with the theory than the practice of many of these things. So yeah, that he's not yeah. you know t- he, he he isn't like a city boy in the wild, but right. he's uh, uh, he's still unpracticed and unproven. Um, another having question: him, having him be having him be trained and having him be fully prepared is two different things. Right, right. It's, I think it's perfectly plausible that they uh, that it that in his upbringing at Rivendell they've they've trained him and taught him things, but they haven't uh, uh, turned him loose in the uh, um, in the wild with all the wolves around him just right. yet. Right. Well, you know right. that could give Morgan a little bit of a swagger, right? Like he thinks he knows. Oh yeah, I, I know this wood stuff, no problem. Right. Right. right, and right. then he finds out he knows nothing. <laughs> right. Well, and of course, he also happens to be doing this during the fell winter, which is like the harshest conditions that the you know Eriador right. has faced in like a couple centuries. So, uh, sort of uh, uh, bad timing as well, uh, as far as that's con- as far as that's concerned. Um, um, okay. Now, Mariel is suggesting one thing that could um, that could have happened. Uh, this is. Mariel again with a good suggestion. Um, remember that the necromancer has just been kicked out of Mirkwood. In other words, Sauron has just returned to Barad-dûr a couple years ago, right? I mean, that's recent. Like that happens. the 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 frame narrative in season one was right around the time of the Hobbit. So it's just been. It's only been a few years since that has. So Sauron has returned to Barad-dûr and proclaimed himself. And so Marielle is suggesting perhaps that news would have reached Rivendell, certainly, um, that Sauron had, had, had uh, openly proclaimed himself in Mordor again. And maybe that spooks Gilrein a little bit, and she is wanting to curtail his activities, um, since she now suspects, you know, she believes that Sauron is likely to be hunting for him or, or something. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, it would give some excuse for an increase of paranoia and why she might sound a little different now than she did when he was 10. Um, but uh, anyway. That just makes to, total sense. That's, that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's, our, that's our solution. 
yeah. to uh, yeah. to being able to simultaneously de- uh, demonstrate that he has had training and he has been prepared to an extent, but um, have some kind of external force trying to reel him in to which would which would lead to him being frustrated. I like it. Yes, he like it. he wants more. All of that's perfectly plausible. Sauron probably would be looking for it. Right, right, quite likely. Um, and he, okay, so he, as he's growing, he wants more and more freedom and to go further and further while as time goes on and the reports from Mordor go in, his mom is wanting to pull him back more and more and be more and more cautious. Um, Especially, we could, we could um, in the prior season, or somehow we could maybe insert um, some evidence that Sauron has heard rumors or hints Mm-hmm. Um, right. of Isildur there in the north during right. his you know, right. during his time in Dol Guldur and his time up in the north we could, we could add some hints that, that Sauron's caught wind that, 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 that Isildur's there might be up there somewhere yes. and so maybe there's like an increase in uh, orc activity and that kind of stuff hey I heard a hobbit yes Wally agrees <laughs> Wally agrees that's right good Good. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And and Karita's right. Karita's para, uh, is uh, uh, quibbling with my use of the word paranoia. She's not wrong. It's it's not paranoid, actually. Right. Right. No, I agree. And this actually fits in with the Fell Winter stuff. We'll come back to that in a minute. But that, it actually fits very well. The, uh, the, the fact that they have evidence that Sauron might be looking or, or have good reason to think that that may be true um, is definitely something that we could... Uh, that we could that we could think about. Okay, all right. So back to the back to the the suggested outline. So he he comes to the camp of the Dunedain, and the central feature of the camp of the Dunedain that we talked about last time. Uh, we have sort of these two separate, the two primary characters among the among the Dunedain. Uh, one who is Halbered, and we chose Halbered because we needed a chieftain, well, like a steward chieftain uh, to rule. Because remember. Everybody, including almost all the Dunedain, have to believe that the heir has died. Like, this is the first generation without an heir of Isildur around. They all think the line of Isildur is dead. Um, most of them do, anyway, but some of them have to be in the know. Um, so ha- so Halberid is chieftain. Um, uh, and so he can't just be steward chieftain. He has to be called chieftain if, it's, if he's going to keep up the, the, the idea that the line is really extinct, right? Um, so he's the chieftain of the Dunedain. Um, and he's, but he knows who Estel is. So he's got to be one of the few people who knows who Estel is. Um, and but he's he's going to be he's of course going to be a good steward. Uh, his son is going to be annoyed. Is going to be the rival of Estel. Uh, and uh, okay, so so we had that we yeah, had that beginning. There's a couple of things that are really interesting about that. First of all, it's going to be really interesting down the way yes when Aragorn actually finds out about himself and how is that going to affect his relationship with Halbrad because yes. up until this time Halbrad was the chieftain now yes. all of a sudden he discovers he's the chieftain you know how's that going to be the other thing is Halbrad's son and and Estelle for as long as we have them I don't know this could be a little cheesy could could sort of almost be a Boromir Faramir mirror in, mm. in a weak way, not in a super right. strong way. Well, um, we're not going to have him for long because the idea is that Halberd's son dies uh, in a couple episodes. <laughs> well, yeah. there you go, right? Boromir, exactly. There you go. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> except instead of uh, instead of wondering why his father is not king, he's going to be like, uh, uh, you know, assuming that his father is uh, king. And, right, and, right, yeah, right, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Uh, so good. Let's see. Um, all right. So so the 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 next step of the plot. So they get 
they start off with rivalry, like they don't like each other from the beginning. Um, uh, Halbred's son. Let's stop and pause at this first uh, first question point from the frame narrative. Let's choose a name for him. What do we name him? We had a few suggestions: Halbaron, Herendil, Arandur, which means king servant, Halgar. Um, Tony Mead has just delightfully suggested Hamilcar in honor of Ham Bulger, who doesn't make the final cuts. That, of course, was Fatty Bulger's <laughs> name. Before it got changed to Fredegar, it was Hamilcar, which is which is another one of those joke names. Tolkien loved these, right? He loved these historical joke names for hobbits. Yeah. Um, How about Bladorthin? <laughs> no, we should save that. We totally need a Bladorthin. Oh, okay. We totally we need a Bladorthin, and we need somebody to make fun of his name. Uh, <laughs> That's got to happen. Be a dine, probably, right? Yeah, somebody. I don't know, but um, but anyway, um, uh, the joke, of course, with Hamilcar is that Hamilcar was the name of Hannibal's father, like you know Hannibal, oh, yeah. the the Car- the Carthaginian general. Um, his father's name was Hamilcar. Um, so uh, so it's it's like this historical name, but it, but I get it, but one of those like really so like the the name of the Carthaginian leader who, like, swore undying enmity against Rome. Tolkien names a hobbit after him. And chiefly because he can call him Hammy for short and, like, make jokes, make fat jokes at his expense. So, like, he takes the name of the Carthaginian general and turns it into a hobbit fat joke, right? That's, 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 like, it's a like classic hobbit nomenclature right there. Um, uh, but anyway, yeah, yeah, so... Um, well, that sounds like the perfect name for a, <laughs> uh, the, a, perfect. Noble, a noble Dunedain youth. <laughs> exactly. Hammy. Yeah, we'll call him Hammy for short. Um, uh, <laughs> anyway. Uh, so, what do you guys think? Names? Hakan likes Horrendo. Yeah, uh, I think I like that, too. Not a big I don't fan. Like the halba. I don't like the Halba start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, Halberon just makes me think of moron. It sounds it rhymes with moron. So. Yeah, Tolkien was fond yeah. of the Oron ending, but yes, for that reason, I'm slightly less fond of that as well. Um, yeah, not to mention that, of course, Boron is an element. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Boron is I mean, uh, on periodic table. Seriously, so. no, I, I, Hamilcar, I think, is actually pretty good, too. Yeah, yeah. I kind of like Hamilcar. I, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of warming to this idea. Yeah, I can almost hear uh, Marie and Nick and Marielle rolling their eyes at us as I say that. But yes, um, I, I, I. Why would they do that? I don't know. I, don't know. <laughs> I just, you know, I like it. When, let's call them Hamilcar, and they can outvote us if they want to. Um, so, <laughs> so, um, okay. Now Nick points out we should have something that means something in Elvish. What, like you don't want the name to be in Punic? Do you have something against Punic names? <laughs> Is that okay? Fine, right? I understand. Um, uh, Zach uh, Coleman Coleman points out that Estelle can insult him by calling him Hammy. You know, it, it gives or Ham. You know, there's, oh yeah. Uh, there's, there's there's sort of the, uh, the, the 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 there there is a potential there. Um, uh, yeah. Um, Okay, well, I'm going to call him Hamilcar for now because <laughs> I think it's fun. So, okay, so he meets – so he, he and Hamilcar are rivals from the very beginning and they get into fights and uh, – so they, they actually get into a, like a, an inconclusive uh, scuffle. 
um, then he is uh, uh, okay. So then we have uh, episode. I'm up to episode five of the synopsis. So hints that the winter is unnatural. This is not just a severe winter, but there's something uh, worse going on. The, how, the 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 invasion of the wolves begins. So the uh, the the increase of the wolves is a big deal. Um, uh, suggestion that Estelle dislikes camp life and puts his foot in it by asking why the Dunedain don't have a proper home because uh, uh, he's, he's you know being ignorant of that um, and uh, uh, and he, the, we get uh, taunting back and forth from Estelle and uh, Hamilcar um, and uh, uh, Halberd trying to be a peacemaker um, we we want to stop at the prancing pony because the prancing pony, of course, has been run by the family of Butterbur for time out of mind. Uh, so that should s- be able to stretch back, therefore, at least this far. Um, time out of mind, of course, could be a hundred years, but uh, uh, but we all assume the prancing pony is still there. Um, um, oh, and we were saying, age-wise, it's too long ago for Barlam and Butterbur to be alive yet. He can't even be conceived yet. Um, and his death... Yes, de- we and- get to do a Butterbur ancestor. Yeah, Barnabas, which well, is pretty that, simple. Yeah, yeah, it's been in the family for years, right? Exactly. So, uh, but, even his, but even his dad is probably going to be a kid uh, at that yes. point. You get to do like his grandfather. His grandfather's yeah. got to be running it, yeah. Uh, his father should be Barnabas. That's very easy. I say that because, again, that was Barlman Butterbur's original name in... Uh, um, oh, and Titus can be his grandfather's Hey, name. I have, a, so I have an ancestor named Marmaduke. How about Marmaduke? <laughs> no, we've got to save Marmaduke. We've got to save Marmaduke. Oh, yeah. Marmaduke, yeah. For the Barleymans, can we do, can we do something similar to, um, to the dwarves? Um, where where, where, where the, the son is born to be just like the father? Right, <laughs> right, sure, <laughs> sure, sure. Um, okay, okay. Let's see. So, okay, what's so what's happening at the prancing pony? Oh, this, uh, Mario was suggesting that the prancing pony. Uh, Estelle gets in. Uh, Hamilcar derisively I- introduces uh, uh, Estelle as Strider uh, as a joke. Um, I'm not sure I like that because he's not earned that name yet. I mean, Strider is in reference to his going about on, on those long shanks of his, right? Um, so like, whereas long shanks, of course, is the, is the even more derisive name for him that Bill Fernie, uh, 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 gives. Um, I don't think, I don't think he can have earned Strider yet. He's got to be around Brie a lot more. Um, besides that, I wouldn't think that that would be the name that <laughs> Margaret Joyce and Tony are suggesting, how about Trotter? <laughs> that is even better. I love it. I love that idea. I love that idea. Yeah, uh, because that sounds more like a, a like a, a a name that would be put upon him by a rival who thinks he's soft. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Marie yeah, thinks I don't that. Think- Strider, Strider. Maybe he may have a funny way of running or something too. That would. would (laughs) A funny way of running. He wears wooden shoes. The problem is his wooden shoes. 
Uh, Maybe yeah. he runs like an elf. <laughs> yeah. 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 I. Uh, uh, I. I don't. I don't think we should actually have him wear wooden shoes. By the way. But anyway. No. Yeah. No. It's. It's. <laughs> yeah. Trotter. No. So Marie thinks that Bree is is rather superfluous to the frame. Um, I agree. I think it's fun um, uh, to sort of check in there and have, uh, you know, an old Brie uh, and, um, you know, Barnabas and uh, uh, Timothy or Titus, either one. Timothy Titus was the very first original name of the barkeeper at the uh, Prancing Pony. And then uh, then it was changed to Barnabas Butterbur and from there to Barlamin. So, Um, but anyway... um, uh, well, I'll come back, Marie. I've got some more comments on Brie uh, there. But anyway, okay. So this ends with uh, uh, an active taunt. So the idea is that Hamilcar is taunts Estelle and like basically dares him uh, to go off. And the suggestion was to go off into the old forest, which has been invaded by wolves. Um, and that he basically, you know, does this to prove himself. And uh, Halberd discovers uh, and is horrified. And Hamilcar goes after him uh, to uh, uh, to try to, you know, undo his, uh, uh, you know, the damage that he's done. They meet up there. They are attacked by wolves. Uh, uh, Hamilcar is uh, mortally wounded, though Estelle gets him out. Uh, and then he watches over his uh, dying companion. The idea is they meet Gandalf as well, so that Gandalf... Uh, this is the point at which Mariel was suggesting that Gandalf could come in and, 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 and meet them when they return back to the camp uh, with the uh, desperately wounded Hamilcar, whom is, who's too far gone for either Gandalf or the twins to, to heal. Um, and... Uh, now the suggestion from there goes that you know, the Dunedain learn that the wolves have invaded the Shire and uh, Halberd goes to fight and to help to save the Shire with Gandalf. Um, the su- Mariel's suggestion was that Estelle stays with, you know, he longs for martial glory but volunteers to stay with Hamilcar instead so that he stays by his, his now friend's side uh, who dies um, and they make peace as he dies. Um, and then he returns home. I, um, I'm not sure. There are a couple things, a couple comments I have here. One is, I, there's not enough, um, there's only a small amount of rashness, and I, okay, my problem is too few people die. I, I, I need more destruction to occur. Um, I'm exaggerating, but the point is um, that um, we had talked about parallels with Thanor. You know, in thinking about the big picture of the frame and the themes of the season, um, one of the things that I want to do, you know, to me, one of the subtexts of the entire frame is Aragorn could be Thanor. You know, in both cases, we have two parallel characters. The character who is the natural leader of their people, um, who is sort of gifted with natural advantages, right? Uh, strength, intelligence, beauty, all these things. You know, Aragorn is great. He is the greatest of his folk. There is no one like him. I mean, think of all the praise that's heaped upon him uh, in The Lord of the Rings. 
Aragorn is a natural born hero and the heir and the destined future king and all this stuff. Um, what, how's, what's he going to do with it? How's he going to act? How's he going to choose? Um, and he and I would like to see him faced with some of the same decisions and making even some of the same mistakes or or like it's not that he needs to go down the same road as Feanor because he's not going to but we need to see him choosing to avoid that road um, the Feanor road um, so I want to and I feel that uh, I mean I, I like this outline in general but the thing that I the thing that I like about it least is that at the end of the outline in particular. Um, uh, after the fight with the wolves, especially, it seems to it seems to me to kind of lose the parallel uh, with Feanor, um, and I would like I would like to recover that, especially of course as we have Feanor's story coming to its conclusion. Right? Um, I want to show. Well, it's tough because. Because Feanor is at the end of his story and Aragorn is only at the beginning of his, so we can't very well make them directly parallel. But um, unless you are planning on killing Estelle, which I assume <laughs> no, 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 no. Yes, that parallel <laughs> would be taking it a bit too far. I think. Uh, so, uh, where did you say again that you think it you think it breaks down around the point where they meet the where where he and in Hamilcar um, encounter the wolves is that where you think well, it breaks down I like that but I also and, and and I also I kind of regret uh, having the protection of the Shire happen off stage basically oh um, so Marie that's where I was coming back to saying about Brie I like going to Brie um, I agree with you Marie that to some extent the trip to Brie feels a little bit superfluous now but not if he's actually involved in the action. <clears throat> I mean, if they come to Bree because they are, you know, that uh, we know that the wolves cross the frozen Brandywine into the Shire. Um, so the wolves are coming from that direction. So having them begin at Bree to set out to, like, head off the wolves um, and, you know, join the hobbits in their fight, uh, you know, at Buckland and... Um, and in the East Farthing against the wolves um, is it's something I want to show I mean we have all that action um, I would want to show it and what's more if we involve Estelle in that action we give him the opportunity to make decisions and you know to make choices which we can make parallel or anti-parallel uh, to Feanor whereas if he's doing less then we don't have that you know as many as many options um yeah yeah now uh, nick is pointing out that part of the problem is that the flow of the story gets a bit weird towards the end of the season both the Beleriand and feanor subplots kind of come to an end before the season is properly over that's right it's that's that's true i mean feanor dies earlier on um the siege of Beleriand sets in, you know, Sauron's victory is as complete as it's going to get down there, um, and not in the final episode or anything. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, Mariel, I am thinking in Bree they learn that the Shire is threatened. Or, you know, like, the, so they're, 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 they know that the wolves are invading south. 
it's there that they see that the the um they observe that the wolves are heading east or west sorry the wolves are heading west and they're going to cross the uh the the you know they see they're they're going to cross the river into the shire um and that's when gandalf can gandalf can come to them and say you know the shire folk need help um and yeah yeah um Yeah, interesting. Nick says there has to be a cue that Aragorn is closer to Fingolfin than Feanor if we want to jump parallels, I think. Well, it's not that we want to jump parallels necessarily. I mean, in a sense, of course, um, Feanor and Fingolfin as well are kind of parallels, you know, sort of foils for each other. I mean, both of them are the two brothers. Feanor is different. I mean, he's sort of head and shoulders above Fingolfin, but, um, you know, in, like, natural ability and everything else. Uh, But... But still, like both of them are confronted, you know, they 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 they, they choose different paths, right? Um, Hakan asks, are the twins back in Rivendell by this point? No, I think the twins stay with him the whole time. Um, I don't know how they would possibly explain. I mean, I guess they could say we left him with his people, but uh, even then, I would think that uh, Gilrein would flay them. So no, I think they should they should stay with Aragorn. I kind of like the I kind of like the idea of. Um of of uh, of the three of them, Stell and then the the sons of Elrond going on a little bit of an odyssey, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, kind of just starting with running around the woods, visiting the Dúnedain's camp, going to Bree, maybe being involved in the uh, may, maybe the climax is the defense of um, I don't know how the, how well this parallels with our main story three uh, main season three story, but but um, but maybe. Uh, climax is the defense of the Shire, and and uh, and and um, Estelle doesn't doesn't get to go home and recover. Doesn't go back to the last homely house until the very end of the season. Right, right. Yeah, so I mean, kind of like a lonely odyssey. Exactly, and it, it clearly gets at a at a hand from El, from Eldon and Elro here's point of view. Right, they agree to stay with him. Okay, you know, you can travel. Or, around a little bit. From there, it's a logical step to say, oh, well, you know, okay, fine, let's go visit the Dunedain because we're here, right? Uh, Aragorn's, you know, Estelle says he wants to see his people, and they're like, well, okay, they're not too far away, I guess we can do that. And then, once they're with the people, they're like, we were headed south to investigate, you know, these rumors. Oh, okay, well, we'll just go along with you there. And then the wolves attack, and then, and then, so in the, obviously, Eldon and Elro here don't really plan to, like, take him into battle to help to save the Shire, but but it kind of spirals out of control and gets to there, and that that seems fairly simple. But also, based on based on what we know of um, uh, Eladon and Elro here, it, it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be a stretch if they didn't really didn't exactly go out of their way to keep him out of the fray, right? Right. Don't right. they kind of seem like the type that they'd be like, well, you know, I, I mean, we're here in the middle of the battle anyway. They, yes. they weren't ever exactly the most cautious guys, especially if we. Make they seem like the Elrond yeah. and Elro here seem like like in in a in the in a in kind of the Rivendell setting where you have sort of wise Master Elrond is the one guiding him and Gilride is sort of his 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 you know kind of maybe somewhat protective mother. Elrond and Elro here seem like they would be the cool crazy uncles. <laughs> right. Well, and especially Elrond, who is the one that we had. Uh, he's the oh, one yeah, with right. the like the bloodthirstiness problem, right? Yes. Um, yeah. And the penchant for vengeance. So, um, 
Uh, so maybe maybe yeah. we have a maybe we have a, a dialogue throughout the season between Eladon and Elro here. Well, Elro here is occasionally saying, um, "You know, I really probably should head back home." Right. And Eladon, Eladon, and every time Eladon convinces him. Yeah. And, and it's yeah. not like it's not and 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 it's 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 not like Elro here is like being dragged along reluctantly. He he gets convinced each time. He's like, "Oh, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah, let's right. let's keep going." Right. But it, every once in a while, his conscious conscience pricks him and he thinks right. like oh, should we really be doing this right and then and, and then eladon convinces him again right yeah the other thing i'd love to see is halbrad talking to the twins going well what am i supposed to do with him or having right. you know conversations about him because of course the twins know and halbrad knows so it's like they talk from time to time about you know how to bring this kid up and how's he going to be the king and stuff like that right right yeah yeah um yeah, no, I like that. And certainly that, that does seem like a good divide where Eladon is from the beginning all about egging him on, basically. Uh, and Elro here is the one who is saying, no, we should do the proper thing. We, you know, we should, we should, we know that you're, you know, uh, that your mom would not approve. And we, you know, and we said we would bring you back home. Um, yeah, that works. That works. Okay. So, so they end up in great, um, Somebody remind me, uh, Nick or Marie, remind me, which episode did we have Feanor dying in? I know this was a point of controversy when we did the outline at the beginning, but um, uh, can you remind me when, when Feanor is meant to die? We do have to make sure we have, we think carefully about the frame for that particular episode. Um, okay, so, but thinking about the climax, you remember that at the very end we have the sun rising and Fingolfin arriving, right? That's what's going to be happening in the final episode. Episode 10 is when Feanor dies. Um, and didn't we have, wasn't I suggesting that Denethor, like the massacre of the Green Elves, happens in episode 11? Wasn't that my suggestion there? So that we ended that, yeah, that was my suggestion. Okay, so so this, the projected outline was Fanor dies in episode ten. Uh, the Green Elves are surrounded and killed, and in and and Denethor is killed in episode eleven, and then episode twelve, Fingolfin arrives and the sun rises. So episode twelve can definitely be a return to Rivendell, right? Or episode, sorry, episode. 13. I'm forgetting how, how many we how many we have. Episode 13. So wait, what happens in episode 12? Right, episode 13. Right. And there was a lot of pushback on Denethor's death in episode 11. Yeah, that's what I was remembering. Um, and my counter to that pushback, as I recall, see, look how good I am at remembering what happened two weeks ago and, and <laughs> even four weeks ago. Um, my pushback to that reaction was that that's basically the, the 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 end. That's the culmination of the Beleriand plot, basically. So uh, um, that's why I was wanting to have that because uh, episode eleven is sort of late enough to end to end that. Um, so what are we saying? Where's the where's the defense of the Shire occurring? That's the question. That's what I'm trying to sort out. What we want got, to make the battle parallel yeah. with? Right, because we have. We have Death of Feanor is episode ten, right? Yes. Uh, and and so that's kind of a big battle, and then 
And then we have episode 12 is also another battle. That's the slaughter of the green elves. So the, if, no, if the that, idea that's is, 11. That's 11. Oh, oh, that got moved. I'm looking at, I'm looking at, uh, I'm looking at the, the PowerPoints from last time. Oh, do we move it? Okay. I don't know. Okay. I'm just looking, I'm looking at a PowerPoint where it says, uh, 11 is making up sun and moon, still crossing hell, Karaxi, uh, trolls. Trolls. 12 is arrival trolls. from hell, Karaxi. <laughs> what does that even mean? I don't even know what that means. Okay. What? Nothing. Uh, I'm just trying to figure out what that means. Okay. What trolls. does trolls mean? Trolls, yeah. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, the important point there is... Oh, the making of trolls. That, right, got it, yeah. yeah. The important point there is that trolls has an exclamation point. <laughs> right, naturally. As it would. That's just what you would yeah. expect. Okay. So, so do we want it, do we want it on it, you know, do we want to have like a major battle episode where there's battles in the frame and battles and not in the frame or do we want, uh, well, and we do, do have we want to, to like, yeah, we have to be careful about yeah, that because we don't have much time. Now, Nick was pointing out that since we are so limited with time in the frame, we could stretch the battle out over several episodes because um, it's not like we're going to have time to show the ebb and flow of a battle with the wolves. Um, in, uh, oh, that's true. And is that going to be a battle or is it going to be more like a siege? I think it could be, yeah. Sorry. What if he, what if we have like the latter half of the season is him living down on the border of the Shire, um, uh, under, under kind of siege conditions and seeing what, like, you know, it's one thing to be living in the camp with the Dunedain. It's another thing to be like down on the front. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Yes. I mean, I agree that we don't have to have a huge climactic battle. Uh-huh. But these are wolves, so it's not like we're going to have a prolonged siege, right? I mean, wolves don't do siege. We're not going to have, like, wolves manning catapults or anything. I mean, like, you either <laughs> oh, fight them or I, I you don't. The wolves right? that set up a blockade. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, um, but what do you, what, I mean, what would... Like, like, just asking the question, what would that be like? Like, is it, it, would it be kind of a one time, like a big pack of wolves shows up and attacks and once driven off, they're done? Or is it going to be more like there's a period of time where it is not safe to go out at night uh, um, anywhere near the outskirts of the Shire? Or it's not safe to, um, it's definitely not safe to walk into the woods on your own. Um, it's not safe to be traveling on the roads. That's when I say siege, I don't mean sort of right. necessarily yeah. Yeah. Um, organized. But yeah. but sort of a, a a period of time where the Shire is 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 you know the the lands surrounding the Shire are incredibly dangerous. Right. Well, that's got to happen. I mean, again, you know, wolves are not wolves are not going to advance as an army. You know, they're not going to attack all in one place or try to take a town or something like that. They're just going to be invading in packs. Um, yeah. So. So, so that's why I'm wondering, like, it could be that he's down there for a prolonged period of time where what they're trying to do is root out, clean out the woods. So a particular... Yeah. How, how soon after, like, does this happen, like, really close after Bilbo arrives back? He's been back that, for, what, like five years, back. something like that? Okay. I was going to say, if this happened too quickly, Bilbo wouldn't even make it back to the Shire. Right, right, <laughs> right. Bilbo's return journey slightly more eventful in our version. Um, uh, yeah, no, but but he would be there, right? Yeah, 
That's kind of cool. So, so are we going to be interacting with Bilbo? I think we have to, which is another reason why I can't possibly stomach the idea of having this all happen off stage, basically, because uh, if the fell winter had happened post Bilbo's adventure, you've got to think, right? He's gonna he's gonna put on his armor and 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 pull down and take down his sword and and go, right? I mean, and he'll use his he'll use his ring to ambush wolves. Yeah, he's he's got his ring, his mithril coat, and sting, right? So, right. you know, surely, surely he would. Uh, um, he, <laughs> um, unless, a, unless, like, just happenstance on uh, in the first party heading out in the woods to kill some wolves, a branch falls, hits him in the head, knocks him out, <laughs> knocks him unconscious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It could happen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The best authors do that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so I, uh, um, tell, tell me if you're on the same wavelength as I, like, like where I see, where I see us heading is, is that, is that, um, because we don't want this to happen off stage. Yeah. Um, we want to, we want to, we want to make sure that we, we get to present it. And because of the limited amount of time we have for the frame, each episode and stuff, I'm kind of thinking maybe half, we spend half the season down in the Shire um, uh, 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 doing skirmishes with the wolves and kind of dealing with life, life, in yes. the, you know, life, life in the wilderness and on the front. And yes. like, this is where, this is where um, Estelle really gets his education on, um, you know, kind of what it's like out there in the real world. Agreed. Which means I would suggest that the conflict with Hamilcar needs to be integrated into the struggle with the wolves and not separate from it. Like in the yeah. outline, the original outline here, um, they have their little thing and he goes off and does his I am brave enough to go into the woods by myself thing. Um, basically before the real battle breaks out in the Shire. And I think we need to connect those two things. Um, I think we can have him goaded to a moment of rashness a moment of rashness that which we can make parallel to Feanor's rashness uh, that gets him killed. Um, and so, you know, maybe, maybe actually that would be a good way to do the, the Feanor Aragorn parallel thing. Um, Aragorn is goaded by the taunts or the, in the previous, the earlier taunts of Hamilcar uh, into a moment of rashness in charging out, which would have led to his death. Uh, like Feanor's led to his death. The difference, the reason that Feanor dies and uh, uh, Aragorn does not, is that Aragorn is rescued by Hamilcar, who dies, right? And then so Hamilcar comes out and saves him and then is joined, you know, the others can come in, Eladon and Elro here can be involved there and, and, and Halberd and whatever. Um, so he can be saved. Uh, he's almost killed. He would have been killed had he not been rescued. And so his realization of this and the death of Hamilcar is one of the things which we can show being this sort of formative moment. Um, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. And I think um, so. So so maybe what happens here is they get down to the like Elodon and Elro here cons- and, and Halbrod consent to take him down to the front. Um, but. But but he's not going out on raiding parties, or at least he's not going not in the same way Hamilcar is. Maybe Hamilcar, despite being young, is going out on like with teams of other young Dunedin, Dunedin who who are prepared. Uh, and Estelle, the only the only time he gets to go out and and um, encounter wolves is when he has um, when he has adult supervision. 
and Hamilcar right. harasses him about this. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, and kind of, I don't know to what extent Hamilcar is kind of privy to uh, Aragorn's. Um, he's not. Is he? He's not. Yes, I think he's or, not. I think he's not. But but maybe he has. Is there some in the in the outline at least? There's some suggestion that Halbarad at one point pulls him aside and tells him, you know, gives him a little talk and says, hey, this guy has like a special destiny or something. Or could it be that he senses it, you know, that there's, he just realizes this kid is getting some kind of special treatment. He doesn't understand why, which just makes him angrier. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, just, he, well, yeah, well, he would be sensitive to the fact that his dad privy, favors him. Right. Yeah. Is he privy to the notion that this guy needs, that this guy is intended to be a leader of some kind? Like, they must know that, right? Do they know that he's the... Son of the chieftain? Halbarad does, but... No, oh, who? Hamilcar? No, you're talking about Aragorn, right? Uh, well, I'm wondering... I mean, how would the Dunedain not know that he's the son of the, the chieftain? Um, because they think the son of the chieftain was killed. That's what was put about. Gilrine and... Don't they know... Oh, okay. They, they Gilrine know and, he's Gilrine's son? And Aragorn no, have vanished. Um, okay. Right. And I, I would think that the, like the excuse, like the the, re, the explanation for why Gilrine stays in Rivendell, like basically that that they have put out that the two of them are dead, um, and Halbered oh, okay. has to be instrumental in that, um, in that, uh, in that uh, uh, that deception, story. basically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, what I what I was getting at, if if there was an awareness that this guy is supposed to be the leader, um, right? Then that would be a plausible point of conflict where Hamilcar is saying, like, you're supposed to be the leader, you're supposed to be the chieftain, and you can't even be trusted to lead a raiding party out into the, the, right. the woods to right. fight wolves. Um, some some leader you are. Right. But, uh, but if we're keeping his identity a secret, then we can't do that. No, we can't do that. Um, but he could sense that he has some kind of, he's getting some kind of special treatment and really resent it. Yes, so he, he would. There could be some taunt related to that, and yeah, and so I mean, it would just be chiefly about um, um, it would it would just be chiefly about Aragorn trying to prove himself, basically. Um, mm-hmm. So it would have well, to Hamilcar, be Hamilcar. I assume Hamilcar assumes he's the heir to the chieftain, right? He's the heir to the chieftain dumb. That right? ha- that I mean, that he himself is. Yes. Yes. He, yes. That he yeah. Himself is. Yeah. Right. He would be. Right. He would. He would. Yeah. He would. He would. I mean, if we don't tell him, he would have to be. I mean, if if that's a secret, right. uh, then right. he would. So that would be. Uh, oh, it's a little tough that on Halberd. Yeah. Attitude. Yeah. Oh boy! Like, imagine the day you've got to pull your son aside and be like, "So, by the way, uh, we're, not, we're I was just faking the whole time. We're not actually chieftain. You know." I, and guess guess who is chieftain? You know. Yeah. The guy you like. That so guy. Much. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's uh, that's 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 an unen- unenviable conversation to have as a father. But um, is that? Uh, do you think that conversation is happens before Hamilcar heads out into the woods? At some point, Halvard realizes he has to take his son into confidence, pulls him aside, and says, "Look, uh, you need to know about this guy." And then Which that's when Hamilcar, Hamilcar sacrifices himself to yeah, save him. Yeah, and then that's when Hamilcar's like, "Oh crap!" Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, Nick was suggesting that that when when Estelle goes out 
uh, he overhears, or like basically, like his dad and Eldon and Elro here completely freak out, and he doesn't understand uh, why his dad is completely freaked out. Or maybe he overhears them, or somebody says something in, or, or maybe his dad at that point, um, like you know, Halberd in his, you know, just kind of breaks down and, and and says, yeah. You know, um, yeah. So in other words, I think this is good. He dies knowing that Aragorn is actually the chieftain. Mm-hmm. I think that's mm-hmm. that's. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, yes. You know, I do think um, that's good. We're gonna have to. We're gonna have to encourage someone to have like a web TV version of the frame narrative, just devoted to the frame. <laughs> you know how they do the that? They have like spinoff little web <laughs> right. television programs. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So we'll have an animated web series that <laughs> fills in the gaps. Right. 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 Now, Tony Mead has an interesting suggestion that although Halbert is the leader, he never actually calls himself uh, chieftain. Um, and ha- Hamilcar doesn't understand why he doesn't take the title. Um, yes. Denethor Boromir. With the Denethor Boromir thing, yeah. Um, uh, I think that is possible. I mean, because basically it would... And Mariel was just asking, do we need to explain why they're deceiving their own people? Um, we could mention it. I mean, you know, that, that like that you know, Gil Ryan could even, it could even come up in episode one, you know, that, uh, uh, everybody thinks they're dead. Um, because it was because they didn't want it to get back to the servants of the enemy that, uh, that the, you know, they want the servants of the enemy to believe that the heir of Isildur is that the line is completely extinct. Um, and it, that's got, you know, it's, it can't be an open secret, right. That he still exists. So they decide that for, you know, only a small handful of people like Arathorn's closest friends and supporters and kinsmen know, uh, that, uh, um, that, that, uh, about the Gilrine Estelle to Rivendell plan. Uh, everybody else thinks that they were all killed. Um, and, but it would make a kind of sense, right? Given how tradition-oriented the Dúnedain have to be, um, the chieftain has been the heir of the king, right? After the king, after the after the kingdom fell, right. um, the chieftain is the heir of the. So the the idea that uh, Halbered, as the first non-heir of Isildur, leader of the Dúnedain, would not take the same title. Um, does make sense. I mean, and that's something that could fly without giving away the secret, right? You know, everybody could still believe that the line was extinct and yet have him not do that. And Hamilcar could, could be, you know, being like, you know, well, why aren't we chieftains? You're, you're the next heir. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, good. Exactly. Um, Mariel is thinking maybe they call him Captain instead. Tony was just suggesting that same thing. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I was I was thinking more like Vizier. Vizier. <laughs> <laughs> Viscount, maybe. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Mar- Marquis. Marquis. Yeah, Marquis. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> Yes. Um, Karita says it's going to be really sad for people when Boromir dies and we get to see Aragorn relive the moment when he was watching uh, 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 Hamilcar die. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. See, I love this kind of thing. Uh, I mean, if we don't get to play the long game in the film film project, what's the point, right? I mean, exactly. Uh, 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 Sowing the seeds for that. Um, 
Uh, of course, you know, that does bring up the thing about Hamilton. It should be an architect then, right? Hamilton should be full of arrows. <laughs> yeah, well... While he tries to save Aragorn. That brings up an interesting question. Um, do we want anything other than wolves? Do we want to up the stakes there at all? Oh, well, that brings us to the other question. Causes of the fell winter here. Um, why is the fell winter happening, and why is it happening now? Um... Especially given oh, what we were talking yeah. about, You're talking at, about like supernatural type stuff, right? Right, I mean, like, right, exactly. Not, not natural, yeah, yeah. And this kind of so we we brought this up last week, but we didn't really just, we didn't really settle it because um, uh, cause there are several things here. First of all, the timing is too coincidental, right? Especially since now in episode one we're bringing up the fact that Sauron has proclaimed himself, so like this new era of you know danger and evil is come to Middle Earth. Um, and then this huge fell winter happens, right? So that seems like that shouldn't just be an accident. And then you remember that, uh, you know, the belief among the Lossoth that the Witch King of Angmar could control the weather, right? So, um, I was just say Witch King. Yeah, exactly. Witch King King so is this like, is, is, is the Witch King back or is Angmar reviving? You know, this is something that, so that it was a suggestion that the Dunedain would interpret the fell winter as like, oh no, perhaps this means that Angmar is rising again um, with with Sauron's return. Um, well, and you know, they could actually be worried that Sauron might actually enter Angmar. You know, they don't necessarily know that he's gone to Baradur, right? To, to Mordor. Could Sauron be in Angmar? Or, or I suppose, like you're saying, could the Witch King be, right, be setting right. himself up again in Angmar, given that Sauron is back in Mordor? Right, yeah. exactly. Um, so, yeah. uh so yeah, so um, the the I like the idea of there being a massive eruption uh, of Mount Doom when Sauron returns, um, uh, and that that causes the the you know to actually have like a meteorological explanation uh, uh, is a little different. But I you know it 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 could um, um, it that 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 could definitely work. Um, so, but my question is, is it, that is, is, is it a return from Angmar? Is it a return of, do we have something from somebody up in Angmar? Is it just wolves? Or do we have other things besides, wolves invade the Shire, right? Do we have something other than wolves that don't get, thing. well, exactly. Yeah. You know, so maybe like wolves and orcs come down and the orcs are defeated, but the wolves get through. Cause what are you going to do? Right. I mean, you, again, you can't, you can't exactly set up an anti-wolf blockade very well. Um, so the wolves get through and invade the Shire, but the orcs are stopped. Something like that. Trolls <laughs> suggests. <to me>. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. That uh, explains it. Um, yeah, yeah. Marie says, we found something that works historically, meteorologically, mythologically, and cosmologically. The volcanic winter is, you know, is, is, I agree. I'm totally cool with the volcanic winter. I like it. But, um, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's good. It's, it's, it's perfect. It, it works in lots and lots of ways. But again, is it only wolves? Because we could not. I mean, we could, we could, we could bring in some orcs. We could totally do that, um, or trolls. Also, trolls coming down from the north uh, would not be unheard of, right? Um, so I think it would be interesting. 
to sort of sh- and of course one of the things that we would be establishing is how the Dune and Dine are protecting the Shire, right? Um, so of course in the Shire annals, the fell winter in which the wolves invaded is like one of the great disasters of of uh, of recent memory, right? Um, but it would be kind of fun to sort of show people because this is exactly what gets implied several at several points in the Lord of the Rings that. This thing, which is held as a great disaster and one of the one of the, the 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 worst events in recent Shire history, was actually way way better than it could have been. Like had the Dunedain not inter, interceded, that uh, um, that invasion of wolves would have been nothing. You know, w- would have been like nothing. Um, And just suggesting, just asking the question. It seems an important one to uh, to decide. There seems to be a general movement for sticking to wolves. Um, Nick says they could be led by a werewolf, right? I mean, we do have like the you know those unnatural wolves um, or wargs. Wargs could be involved, right? Exactly. I mean that we've got the we've got the remember the the wolves um, down in Eriador or down in uh, Eregion. I mean. Eregion. Yeah. Um, so we could have we could have some wargs and uh, you know a particular warg chieftain that gets brought down. So still, the ones that get into the shire are sort of lesser. Um, now Zachary Coleman points out that between the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, trolls become a bigger deal, right? We get that thing about the you know how the the trolls are. Uh, uh, now are you know uh, now armed with dreadful weapons and stuff, right? Um, so seeing a seeing a sort of shift from um, you know trolls no longer uh, 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 you know William and Bert uh, anymore. Um, one one question. Uh, this this is this is kind of a sort of a kind of a meta comment. We're um, we're uh, and, and and Wally's agreeing with my point here. Um, we're kind of compre- we're 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 there are some implications for kind of the timeline following the Hobbit of the changes we're making, right? In the sense that the the Hobbit um, and and some of the, the the apocryphal materials around the Lord of the Rings. I guess the Lord of the Rings references this too. That like following the fall of the dragon, that we get like these years of peace. And and good things happening in the north, um, right. uh, and uh, we're kind of undoing a lot of that, right? Like 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 my the implication is that that transition to like the the trolls becoming no longer dull witted but right. cunning and evil right. and that kind right. of stuff that happens over the course of like fifty years. Yes, and we're saying like we're saying like basically they kill the dragon and they get five years of peace and then it all goes to hell. Well, I'm thinking Bilbo wrote that ending as wishful thinking. Like, he wrote that <laughs> ending of Happily Ever After before any of this stuff happened. <laughs> right. right. He's, like, projecting how he'd like it to have well, ended. That is true. He usually starts with writing the ending, doesn't he? Yeah, you know, I mean, I could see him sort of saying, yes, and this is, and, you know, before any of this stuff happens. Oh, and this is how it's going to be from now on. And it's like, then when it happens, he's like, I'm not going to go back and finish the ending. I'm not going to go back and change the ending. <laughs> But see, what we could show, though, Dave, is what happens around that ending. Like, in the sh- from the point of view of the Shire, yeah. I mean, there's the fell winter, and this is only five years after Bilbo's returned. Um, but, uh, but after that, I mean, we still have, like, 65 years of peace and prosperity, right? But the point is, outside well, the Shire... Until, 
that's until our that's until we uh, get to that period of time in our frame narrative <laughs> in season seven. <laughs> stirring up more more conflict and date. No problem. No, but, but see, I, I'm incorporating that because yes. um, this is the beginning. Remember, it's at the time of the fell winter when uh, Gandalf takes an interest in the Shire folk, right? Uh, as a whole, so. Um, I know that shifts the chronology and how would he be friends with the old Took and get connected with Bilbo and stuff beforehand and whatever. I'll handle that problem later on when we get to The Hobbit. But uh, but the point is, if this is the moment when uh, it is perhaps not normal, for like the Dúnedain have probably not been deliberately protecting the Shire before this point. But after this point, they do. Right. So from now on, the Shire is going to be more sheltered than it was before. And so it will be this golden age of peace and prosperity uh, in the Shire and they will be sheltered and protected. But um, they don't understand why. But so outside the borders of the Shire, things can get as feisty as we like them to get. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um. Plus, Aragorn's yeah. going to go south and, you know, serve for Gondor and all that good stuff anyway. So, you know, when he turns into Thorongil, he'll be busy other places. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Exactly. Yeah. We'll, we'll be able to take him out and, and spread the chaos to other to other regions. So that'll right. be fine. Um, OK. So I think, by the way, that Bilbo should come in. Um, I don't know where Bilbo should come in. Should Bilbo be involved in the last in the battle where Hamilcar dies and Estelle has to be saved from his rashness? Mm. What role does Bilbo play? See, having it just be wolves really limits Bilbo's usefulness because his invisibility is not so very useful against and, wolves. And Sting can't light up either. Exactly. Exactly. I, I, to be perfectly honest with you. I'm not convinced that Bilbo's role in this is like is like Bilbo's going to be out with the hunting parties, like fighting mm-hmm. against the wolves himself. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of think in Bilbo's Bilbo's involved, but maybe not as a foot soldier. Like right. He would want to be saving the Shire, so his whole attention probably would be on making sure the Shire, or at least Hobbiton, is okay. Because I guess you know, apart from a few moments where he's, um, uh, uh, you know, especially with the spiders, where he's like, you know, take, getting his hands dirty and killing them and stuff. Although he, even that was pretty limited, right? Mostly what he did was infuriate them and draw them away. He missed the entire battle of five armies, and he expressed serious distaste for it. Right? He right. said that was like definitely the worst part of his journey. I don't see him necessarily being. It is true that the wolves limit us, and so maybe it's worth considering adding some some goblins in there or something. But I uh, but I don't know if we're just doing it to give Bilbo something to do. I don't think that's necessary. I, I don't really see Bilbo being a maybe Bilbo goes out with some of the part some of the hunting parties and stuff. But I don't see him being in the thick of the action. I kind of see him. He's back. Maybe he he can be um, Estelle's companion on the sidelines, where they say like. You, you know, all right, we're going out. You can come with us, Estelle. Bilbo, you're coming too, but you two stay back there. You're not getting involved. And the other, kind of like Mary and uh, Mary yeah. and uh, Eowyn. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and the other really tricky thing is, we have to be careful. If Bilbo is like captain and hero on the Shire side, um, that would have a permanent shift in his reputation, especially in the East Farthing, right? I mean, like. 
farmer maggot would remember the heroics of Bilbo Baggins in helping to save the Shire in the time of the fell winter. Um, uh, as like farmer maggots probably alive already. Uh, yeah. uh, at this That's point, I, I would suggest, I would suggest that, may, that, that it's less organized than that in the sense that maybe the Shire, cause recall, recall that, that in the Lord of the Rings, the impression we get is that the, um, is that the, 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 the Shire folk are generally unaware yes. of all the things that the, that the Dunedain have done to protect them. So maybe, maybe that's what's happening here, that they're not like, they're not camped out in the, uh, in the Shire, of course, you know, meeting up with the Shire battalions and all that kind of stuff. They're kind of out in the woods, sort of secretly defending the Shire, trying to, trying to like at least thin the herd, thin the pack yes. a little bit so that the wolves will get through. Yes. Um, the hobbits can deal with themselves. And maybe what Bilbo's doing is Bilbo is shadowing the, the, the Dunedain. Like he's out hanging out with the Dunedain, but he's not, maybe he's not directly involved, but he's also not involved directly necessarily with the defense of the Shire so that, so that the Shire folk are also unaware of the role he's playing. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I think, I think that has to be the case. I think the Shire people have to be unaware of the role that he plays. He, so it has to be, um, as uh, as as Nick says, it, uh, his contributions have to be largely invisible, right? Um, uh, which seems perfectly right. Um, the other thing with the Shire, what we would want to do with the Shire is again not like, it's not a military operation on either end, right? Because the hobbits aren't an army and the wolves are not an army, right? So this has to be, but there I think there should be like a rising of the countryside. Um, the Dunedain and Gandalf need to be impressed by the hobbits, right? Um, and so what we can do is a kind of parallel to the scouring, right? Where they, you know, they, they unexpectedly rise up. Gandalf and the Dunedain can expect that the hobbits are just going to be dead meat in front of the wolves, right? Um, that the wolves are just going to go through and slaughter everybody. That's That's like their narrative, right? And what they're thinking is going to happen. They'll be surprised, by the fact that um, the hobbits resist. And yes, Robert, we do need to make sure we get the horn call of Buckland sounded. Uh, absolutely. Um, uh, so the horn call of Buckland sounds and they come out. So they, they, they fight the wolves and they band together against, but again, we're not talking pitched battles, right? We're not talking about uh, forming of militia even. It would be the forming of hunting parties, right? To go out and and, right. uh, and and hunt down the wolves. So it'd be more like the countryside rising and responding in this way, um, which again fits in with the series of skirmishes, no one single major battle. Um, and Bilbo can be mostly scouting. He's the one, the only one of the hobbits who knows that the Dunedain are there and is helping to coordinate uh, that you know to 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 communicate with them and to relate to them what's going on in the Shire, um, which is why his contributions are pretty much uh, unseen and unnoticed by the Shire folk themselves. Yeah, um, and so Hakon, I think Hamilcar has to be killed by a wolf. There, if if it's only wolves, he's got to be. He can be killed by like the great big werewolf warg chieftain dude. Right, well, you know, we can have a boss wolf who ends up killing Hamilcar uh, as Hamilcar steps in and defends Estelle from him. Um, but uh, okay, I think this works. I like this. Um, Mariel had an interesting suggestion about bringing in as a cameo among the uh, 
among the Dúnedain, Gilrein's parents, who could still be alive, uh, and who don't know that, who think that that Estelle is dead, or maybe they don't. Um, but uh, I don't know if we'll have time for that. But um, yeah, yeah, we do have a vote for there being trolls, and that Hamilgar Car should be killed by a troll, the way that Feanor is killed by the Balrogs. But I think we can, I think we can do that. I think we can do the parallel with the boss wolf if we need to do that. Okay. Um, however, the frame isn't isn't uh, think, uh, isn't all we were going to talk trolls, about today. <laughs> adding, I think adding trolls makes this uh, is starting to turn this into more of a organized invasion. Yeah. Unless a unless a remember that one winter when the wolves got a little uh, got a little out of control. Right. Uh, right. That's 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 uh, we're, we're starting to Peter Jackson it now. Right. Rather over-egging the pudding. Yeah, and that's even without bringing in wereworms, which several people suggested. Um, yes, yes. Um, okay, so let's go to our other questions, because we are, we, are, uh, uh, we are getting... I say nice. Azog should lead the invasion. Yeah, well, that makes sense. At least as much sense as anything in the Hobbit movies made. Um, uh, okay, so I think... Oh, so of the, to the last point, do we add Tharbad to the frame? That was a suggestion, because, uh, you know, of having the, uh, the flooding of Tharbad and the, the abandonment of Tharbad. I, I, I think we have to lose that. I, I, I don't think there's time for it. There's too much, too much to be done with uh, uh, fighting orcs in the snow around the Shire, so uh, I, think we, I think we skip that one. Uh, okay. So, of my the three topics we raised last time, Minigroth. Um, my question, the reason, I, so again, just to explain again the reason I raised this question. Um, if they have the girdle, why do they need def- extra defenses? Why do they go underground? Why do they live in a cave? And one of the reasons I say this is that I know that this is something that's kind of counterintuitive to a lot of people. A lot of people who read Tolkien are like, why do the elves live in caves? That seems like... Lothlorien makes sense to everybody. You know, the elves living in and among the trees seems like a natural elvish thing to do. Um, living in a cave seems not like a natural elvish thing to do. Um, so why do they go and why do they move in there and what does it have to do with the dwarves? How do we handle that? Um, and uh, my favorite... El- See, these are all different sort of suggestions that were made from the discussion boards. Um um, there are several things that I like. One point is that elves visit the home of the dwarves, right? I mean, we have some like, uh, you know, ambassadorial exchanges there um, and that they they love the beauty of the dwarf cavern so that it's actually an aesthetic rather than uh, rather than a, a, a military choice. Um, and I like that. I like the idea of the I mean, they would do it differently, of course, you know, in the kind of aesthetics of Minigroth there. I mean, they're going to be different than the than the aesthetics of the dwarf uh, halls. But um, I think that it's a really nifty idea. Right. Uh, because they're. When, if they're living out mostly, you know, in the open, in the trees and they, they have a place, you know, by the lake, but um, th- I like the idea of, like, the, the sort of the the, aesthetic, the aesthetic experience, the all the carvings and things that they can do uh, underground. Um, I think that's really kind of, uh, uh, kind of nifty. Um, the, the other suggestion, okay, so um, <clears throat> fire was raining down from the sky, uh, in uh, at Quivienen, right? And we did have the Noldor suggesting underground defenses there. 
so we would have a precedent for this kind of thing when battle begins. Um, those who remember Quivienen might be kind of spooked by this and say that they would be safer underground. Um, the idea that they're going to hide seems to me, I mean, I, I, I think we can go there, you know, <clears throat> that impulse to go underground and hide. But, uh, and uh, Marie, I think that this was your suggestion, which I think didn't even get put on the slide. No, it is the second one there. Um, the mention of perpetual darkness. Um, the uh, Marie was sort of considering this, and this is a wonderful uh, line of thinking, Marie. I really admired this. Um, the chain of thinking, because uh, Marie, as soon as you brought this up, I realized, I think that that's one of the big issues, right? When people imagine elves living underground, it's like what... When they imagine elves in the forest, I think, generally, they're imagining elves living out in the sun-dappled woods, right? Um, why would elves live always, you know, enclosed in, in the darkness underground when they could be out in the in the sun and the wind and the trees, right? Um, but there is no sun. There is no moon. It's dark all the time outside. Uh, so the question is, like, what kind of darkness do you want to live in? Um, and yes, they would be out from under the stars, but they could make lights. Living underground, as Marie points out, actually gives you the opportunity to live in a well-lit and thoroughly lit place, to banish darkness, essentially. Um, because they can't banish darkness outside, even if they light their homes and they light the, um, and they light the city, right? It's always darkness around outside that. And indeed, if anything, that makes the darkness outside look even more mysterious and even darker, right? Whereas if you're enclosed completely in a cave within walls, you can light the whole thing. Um, so they can be living in bright light. They can banish the darkness within their little underground realm. Um, so there is this counterintuitive way in which being underground, in these conditions where there's no sun and no moon, uh, living underground actually allows you to live in less darkness, than you would be living in if you were living outside, um, which I think is really, really neat. Um, so they build this this world of illumination underground, and we can have gorgeous lighting, right? Not just, you know, torches and candles, um, but yes, Nick, crystals, right? We can do lots of things uh, with that kind of, you know, we can have, uh, um, uh, yeah, lots of sparkly light and stuff. There's no reason you we know, can't do that. You, uh... When you overturn a lamp in the cave, it doesn't burn your city down. Right, exactly. More secure in that way, too, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but, I, I mean, I, I sort of get kind of the, the that sort of when we think of elves informed by, you know, 50 years of elves and popular imagination, there is kind of a, a sense that, like, oh, elves should live in trees, not in yes. caves. Yes. But when you read the Silmarillion, I mean, it seems like, a lot of the elves live in, live in caves, at least the elves in, in Middle Earth. Yeah. Um, you know, and I don't know whether it's a pragmatic reason where they're saying, let's go where it's defensible or what. But but um, another explanation is that um, several of the cave or, or fortified um, areas where the, the elves live are places where the where Valar told them to go. Right. Right. Yeah. And um, and of course, you know, as Tony was reminding us, as I mentioned last week, too, elves living inside mounds and under hills is traditional. Like it's in a fairy story. That's where you go to go to the to fairy is you go in 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 a hill, you go underground. Um, uh, So, yeah, that's that's very normal. Um, 
which is why I think it's actually probably Tolkien's fault uh, that uh, elves are associated with forests. Because again, we're thinking of 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 you know the elves of Mirkwood and the elves of Lothlorien. Um, uh, but anyway, yeah, no, you're absolutely right, uh, Dave. This is going to be a common thing in the Silmarillion. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it makes. I mean, I'd have to I have to do some research into this, but it's an interesting question to me. Before Lothlorien, before the publication of the Fellowship of the Ring, how many elves do you have living in forests? I mean, there's there's the association of like the deep forest with fairy. Like you'll like Arthurian folks will often meet elves in the forest, right? But that doesn't mean the elves live in trees, right? Or live in the forest in any kind of way. They just that's where you encounter them because that's where the boundary to fairy is. Um, the elves, like uh, you know, if you happen to be like um, Sir Lanval, for instance, and you find an amorous elf queen out in a pavilion serving you a nice dinner and taking you to bed afterwards. Um, she doesn't live there. That's not her house. It's a tent, right? Uh, she has a kingdom, right? She has a, she has a palace somewhere. Um, anyway, anyway. Um, uh, so yeah, I'm wondering, I'm wondering to what extent this thing is actually Tolkien's fault and now kind of coming, circling back around on him uh, uh, when we think about the Silmarillion stuff. But anyway, anyway. Um, so, uh, okay. There, so we can show some impulse to protection, right? We would rather be, um, you know, we're, 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 we're worried about the sky. We're worried about fire falling from the sky. Um, we think it might be safer underground, but I think having there be those two positive things, this, this idea of, you know, their desire to make a realm that is full of both beauty and light, I think would be really cool. Um, so I, I, I like that for an emphasis on Menegroth. Um, that, uh, that really makes me happy because again, it needn't be, uh, a military fortification, um, but that they choose that they choose to do it on largely aesthetic grounds, um, I think is pretty cool. Um, okay, uh, my Minograph. So the Helcaraxa is it only the ice that's dangerous? Uh, exactly, that is the question. How do we handle the journey now? What are your thoughts about this, Dave? Again, I, you know, I, I come back to the phrase that you just used. We don't want to go full Peter Jackson on this, and I think we have a serious danger of this here, right? Um, but at the same time, having the Noldor simply endure the harsh conditions of the wind, you know, you know of the journey across the Helcaraxa, um, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm underestimating it. Maybe we can, we can make that really compelling. Uh, yes, they're going to be, um, you don't think, um, you don't think like 10 to 15 minute sequences of people walking through the, walking through a blizzard and shivering. Yeah, exactly. So what, what do you say when you made the Peter Jackson illusion? Um, are you, are you suggesting that we need to action it up a bit? Maybe have some attacks by some, uh, snow trolls or, uh, Ice giants or, suggest or ice themselves. Giants or winter wolves. Yeah, or... like is so. I mean, because yeah, do we? To what extent? That's my question. To what extent do we want um, 
action-oriented dangers. Because, um, I mean, so dangers that we have are their provisions running, you know, like, so starvation, right? Their provisions running because they're not they're going to be able to get food, right? Their provisions running out and uh, and them being undersupplied for, you know, they're not prepared for the extreme cold. Um, so so we've got we've got potential death by exposure and hypothermia. We've got potential death by starvation, neither of which are extremely exciting. And um, we can certainly do grinding ice, right? We can have falling glaciers. We can have, you know, we can have, uh, sorry, we can have bits of ice, uh, bits of ice, huge blocks of ice falling out from under people and people drowning. We can have people getting crushed. So there can be those kinds of physical dangers. We definitely should have that. Um, but, uh, um, you're right, Hakan. People dying from falling into chasms isn't boring. Um, it's certainly, like the scene where Turgon and his wife are separated, and you know she dies, like no, reaching up towards him, right? You know, and he sees her fall and uh, uh, and get uh, you know uh, get lost in the churning waves. Like, yeah, that can. Um, um, that's fine. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not opposing that. Um, but uh, do we? Okay. So here's one other question here. Um, Do we want Morgoth to attack at all? That's one possibility, right? One possibility is that he discovers, he hears rumor that the elves are crossing the Helcaraxa, and he counterattacks somehow. We could have that occur. I'm not a huge fan of that idea. Uh, neither is Hakan or nor Marie. I understand, right? Hakan says he'd be focused on Feanor. I agree, that seems likely. Um, I guess to me it depends on how long the hell correct... Okay, wait, hang on. I've, 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 I've got another issue. I've got another problem. Uh, it's challenging to make people dying of hypothermia dramatic. How do we convey the... Even more than that, I'm worried about conveying the strength of the Noldor, right? Like, so there's that line, remember, that talks about the hardihood of the Noldor. New come from Valinor, right? Um, The implication is that humans a similar group of humans would all have been wiped out. They would never have made it across the Helcaraxa. Nobody else could have done that. Even, potentially, Sindar from Beleriand might have all died. But because, you know, the fire of their spirits was burning hot within them and their new come from Valinor, uh, they are stronger to endure. How do we show that? Nick says, by showing them not freezing to death. Like those pins. Well, 
Right. Yeah, I, I, I get that, Nick. But my point is, how do we convey that concept? That is, if we show people being cold but not freezing to death, we're just going to be conveying to our audience that it's not really all that cold, right? I mean, it's, it's, so, it's like, how do we convey that? Like, no, it is so cold that you would be that if you were there, you would totally be dead. But these people are super tough and they can handle it. Yeah. Uh, the, and the only way to the the only way to convey that something like that on screen is to is to materialize the hardiness, right? So so you can't sort of demo, you can't you can't portray on screen that they just happen to be hardy. You have right. to turn the hardiness into skills. Like oh look, they're surviving because they wore big coats and they can make fires. Um, right. Well, I see, think we, I think we have to Peter Jackson this. Well, because I mean, I get like so yeah, as you know, uh, as. Tim, uh, as Tim Fisher was just saying, um, you know, like if there's like an extreme blizzard, but the Noldor are only lightly clothed and not freezing to death, like that's just going to look weird. I mean, like, how do you ma- – couldn't that be comic? I mean, mightn't people start laughing if we see the Noldor yeah. walking around in a blizzard in short sleeves saying to each other, getting a little chilly, isn't it? You know, I mean, like it's, yeah, I mean, it I totally undermines the, the drama. I can just see the Reddit discussion thread now. Right, exactly, exactly. So, I, I um, um, right. Hakan says a human would die after one day. They walk for months or years. I agree. Like conceptually, I get that. How do we convey that visually in what, like three sequences? We're gonna get. I mean, we're we're gonna show them in the Helcaraxa maybe three times. Um, limiting the amount of time we spend with them in the Helcaraxa is, to me, the easiest answer to the action question, right? Yeah. Um, because if we, you know, then we can have one episode of, like, glaciers collapsing on folks, and we can have another one of the ice breaking up underneath them, right? And we can have another um, with, uh, we can have another that just sort of focuses on how cold and starving they are maybe. And that can focus primarily on discussions among the people. Right. So we don't have to have, so I, we can do that. Um, now how can I think Nick had suggested this earlier? Um, uh, uh, animals, right. They have animals with them um, and their animals are dying are are freezing to death. Um, which helps with both them, the them running out of food and also conveying how, uh, uh, how much hardier they are than the average. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, Corey note, um, as a, as a comparison, they kind of, they, they kind of like game of Thrones kind of has the same job to do, mm -hmm. right. To, To try and, to try and, um, to try and show that the Northmen are way hardier and much right. much better equipped to deal with the long winter than right. say the, the the guys from the Reach. Yeah. And and really the only way this comes out on the show at all, you know, it's a it's a much bigger plot point in the books where you can where where it gets discussed right. um, in prose. Right. right. And the T V show, the only way you can really communicate it is uh, just to have people keep saying it over and over again, right? <laughs> like it's basically right. just dialogue. Right. Northerners saying, like, you Southerners don't really know what you're talking about, etc. Right. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure it's really critical to, 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 like, I think it would be enough to show, like you were saying, glaciers falling on people, people breaking through ice, people freezing, etc. And just showing that, like, a lot fewer people arrive in Middle or in Balerion 
then originally departed, and you know, and letting the letting the viewer kind of uh, arrive at their own conclusions in terms of like, wow, that must have been a harrowing crossing. Right. Um, it was a much bigger group that we saw marching onto the Halcaraxa right. than we saw marching off of it. Right. Right. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Um, and it's you know, if uh, if we if viewers don't get the fact that the Noldor are way are way hardier and and humans would all have died. It's not the end of the world. I mean, we don't yet have humans, so we don't have that point of comparison even available to us. Um, so, as you say, Dave, there's not even any way to do that in dialogue, right? Um, all we can do is convey that they almost die, and it's really, uh, uh, it's really difficult. Um, Yeah, Robert Brown is wondering if we could have malevolent spirits like unto that of Karathras. Um, see, Robert, that's the kind of thing I was thinking of. Like, if I had to, if I had to add an antagonist, right? If I had to add something to threaten or fight with them other than the terrain and the conditions, I would want a giant of some kind, um, like an ice giant. Because um, first of all, I'm not sure whether or not we should put giants into Middle Earth. Um, Giants in Middle-earth is, to me, a really interesting question, actually. Uh, because, of course, Tolkien did put giants into Middle-earth, but then he kind of took them out uh, later on. I mean, there are definitely giants in Middle-earth in the early days. You can tell from The Hobbit. Uh, you know, he puts them into The Hobbit, too. Um, but he takes them out later, sort of, but never totally officially. Like, he never says there are no giants in Middle-earth. Um, they they just get kind of written out, sort of. They, they're not alluded to in The Lord of the Rings. Um, but uh, uh, but anyway, so I, I, I personally I kind of think there are giants in Middle Earth uh, still, uh, and I would kind of like to have some. And this seems like a place where you know if you'd park an ice giant, he'd be at the Helcaraxa, right? Um, so you know I think that that, but that might be too much. It might be it might be too Peter Jacksony. Maybe we don't need a because then like we'd have to have somebody kill him or something, and that'd be melodramatic probably. So. Um, or they just run. Yeah, they just run from the giant. Yeah, and he's breaking glaciers off, and that's why they're killing. And um, but I, I don't. I think yeah. I'm. A, I think I'm against the ice giants. You're anti ice giants. Okay. Ice giants are, of course, very, very Norse as well. But yeah, yeah it sounds like Wa- it with, sounds like um, Wally's against them too. So yeah, I think. Yeah. I think I'd be okay with with Morgoth sending forces to assault them and assail them. Right, but yeah. apparently Wally is not satisfied with that idea. No, I agree. Yeah, no, uh, Wally's clearly making himself heard on this point. Okay, so uh, we have a Wally veto on the ice giants. I get that. Oh, the they had a question about should there be um, the whirlpool Wirrowin, which is named in the Book of Lost Tales. Totally, absolutely, uh, and uh, that's where that's where um, that's where Elenwe should die. Turgon's wife. Totally, she she gets sucked down the whirlpool. Um, that would be good. Um, okay, yeah, um, that's uh, okay. So that's fine. All right, I think we can we can manage the Helcaraxa. I think again, the important point is just not could we not spend quite as much time there. Um, on to Angband. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah. So there was this question about the Aurora Borealis, um, which of course is theoretically impossible from a meteorological standpoint if there is no sun. However. Um, the idea was that maybe we could have a um, a a a Valar intervention 
that they see the suffering of the Noldor crossing and the, uh, the Aurora Borealis appears to help to light their way and assist them uh, as they're in their crossing, that some of the Valar take pity uh, on them. I like the idea. It's certainly, if we are interested in preserving more contact with the Valar than the, um, than the book establishes, which I kind of do like, um, we could, um, we could, we could, we could do that. We could have the Aurora Borealis placed in the northern sky, uh, to help to light their way. Um, and the, uh, the suggestion was to get Tillian involved here. The dude is going to drive the moon, uh, later on in this season as a way to introduce his character. Um, yeah, as I recall, right, Hakan is reminding me, the uh, suggestion on the discussion board was that uh, Olmo initiates it because um, uh, he feels guilty. You're saying he feels guilty because he did the hell, he made the Helcaraxa, right? Um, and he sees all the elves dying on it, uh, and then uh, and, and uh, Tillian and, and some of those other spirits uh, help with that. Um, I agree. Varda should be involved, right? First of all, it's a light thing. So Varda should be involved if it's a light thing. Also, we need the whole, like, Varda hearing elves in distress. We can start that, right, already. Um, so, um, so yeah, I, I think I think I want to hear... Um, I, I think I want to have her, her, yeah. So, uh, Omo collaborating with Varda Marie is the kind of the direction that I'm thinking there. Yeah. Yeah. Tony's, Varda was Tony's suggestion there. Yeah. I'd be fine with that. So again, if we think about this, right, we've got plenty, even without any ice giants or rabid walruses or whatever, because we have, um, you know, one episode, we, we've got glaciers falling and I, and the whirlpool, right. We've got them being heard by Varda and the and the thing coming up. Yeah, we're fine. We we've got enough, I suppose. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hakan says the problem is how come there are still auroras after this, and the answer is that Tillian's uh, uh, friends are still doing it. Um, yeah, um, Hakan, it, it can be a, it can be a memorial, right? We can have Tyrion looking, uh, uh, Tillian looking down. We can have Fingolfin and them looking up in the at the northern skies, right, in memory of the crossing of the Helcaraxa. Yeah, yeah, that can work. All right, on to Angband, though. We're running low on time for Angband, but that's okay. Okay, so... Story of our lives. Exactly. How is Morgoth running the show? How much does Morgoth know? So, the question I was asking last time, which I deferred to this time, was... What is Morgoth's relationship with the Sauron-Gothmog rivalry? Is he unaware of it? Does he not care? Does he encourage it? Does he egg them on? Does he set them against each other? Uh, how? What is the political situation? What is the political climate at Angband? I mean, political climate. It's a dictatorship, right? He claims absolute authority for himself, but how does he feel about his underlings squabbling? I gotta think he, the, yeah, when, the, okay. when the when the sort of classic Tolkienian the classic Tolkienian sort of bad guy thing to be on the one hand, you know, anything that 
anything that inconveniences him, he would be he would be mad he would be mad about anything anything that that, that could be interpreted as defiance of what he right. wants bad. Right. But within those bounds, um, stirring up trouble and encouraging dissent, uh, that's definitely the the and trying to trying to manipulate people into doing what he wants rather than directly asking them to do it. Right. Seems to be the Morgoth way. That's certainly how he conducted his affairs in. Um, um, and uh, uh, across the sea, right, right, right. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, you'd think he'd be pro struggle, he'd be pro strife, and and definitely manipulative. Um, when you think about, and and it's it creates an interesting like the characters that we've already created for Myron and and uh, uh, and Gothmog are really interesting, right? Because and they fit with this really interestingly. Because on the one hand. Um, both of them have pluses and minuses as far as Morgoth himself is concerned, right? On the one hand, Gothmog is obedient. Gothmog is 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 his lackey, right? He's his attack dog, um, and he would insist on absolute obedience from his followers. So he would like that about Gothmog. However, whereas Sauron has much more of a mind of his own, right? Which ultimately he's not going to like. Um, and so there's a much greater chance that he and Sauron are going to come into conflict or, I, I mean, Morgoth and Sauron coming into conflict um, because they both have their own plans, right? They both have their own, they both have minds of their own. However, um, he would like the fact that, you know, but there are other ways in which he likes Myron better because he would appreciate Myron's intelligence um, and, uh, and Myron's initiative, whereas Gothmog is just a thug, right, who can't plan and do things for himself. So, uh, you know, it creates a situation where he has the two captains and he appreciates the virtue, you know, the, the virtues, right, of his two captains, but he's not 100% comfortable with either one of them. And he's fine with them fighting with each other. As long as you, as, as you say, Dave, as long as they don't, they're fighting with each other doesn't undermine what he's trying to do, right? Um, the minute that happens, he would clearly uh, slap them down. Um, yeah. Hakan reminds us also that we need to deal with Ungoliant, um, who should be in Nand Ungorthib, um, and leave her kids with Sauron after, after eating her, uh, her mates. Um, <laughs> okay, first of all, <laughs> how, how are we going to, uh, establish the fact that she ate her mates? We're not putting, we're not showing that on screen, are we? <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Ungoliant just finishing up another meal, eating another husband, right, after having another litter. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, nobody wants that. Um, uh, Hakan says that Myron could interrupt her at dinner. <laughs> he goes to visit her, and, and she's... Sorry, I was just eating one of my mates there. I'm all set now. Um... Yeah, I, I don't think I don't think we can do that. I'm not sure we can. That's a line of text. I'm not sure we can put in uh, to the to the story there. Um, oh, by the way, Dave. Side note on Ungoliant. Um, have you seen the trailer to the new uh, video game? The new yes, I have. Mortar video game. Yeah, and how they and how they they totally are ripping off season one of some film, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. And giving Shiwa a, a a female human form. 
Yeah. Uh-huh. I think we should consider legal action. I am thinking, yeah, that's uh, clearly, you know, it's one thing to be derivative. It's another thing not to credit the person uh, whose ideas you're stealing. And obviously, it's kind of lame to do that with Shelob, right? Um, so I've been, I, I've been asked this on Twitter several times, you know, does... Uh, uh, is, is there any kind of reason to think that they're not just making that up? No. No, there's not. Sheila is a spider. Um, and um, I... Uh, um, yeah, no, I've not been doing some consulting, Nick. You could tell. Um, let's just say if I were consulting with the uh, the Shadows of Mordor franchise, it would not be the way that it is. Um, that or I would have quit instantly. Um, but... Um, yeah, no, I, I can't. I have very little patience for the for those video game stories. Um, the idea of having Sheila be... I, 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 I don't think that is not the worst idea that they've had in that video game franchise, but there's, of course, a lot of competition for that title. Um, I, I, <laughs> I think it... I mean... It can be made to make sense. No, I I don't think we should do that with Sheila. We're doing it with Ungoliant, because she is basically a Vala. I mean, she's she is she is on that level, um, and so she takes spider form by choice. The things that she mates with are monsters, right? I mean, she's just mating with monstrous spiders. I don't think the guys that she's mate, mating with are other Maya even. Um, so, her descendants are just giant spiders. Um. Uh, but, uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, um, for that reason, I think in the, I, I would not support the idea of having Shiwab have a, uh, have a, a female form, having her be able to communicate, like to give dialogue to Shiwab, like, you know, do some kind of like telepathic communication from Shiwab or something. I would consider having Shiwab be, able to speak, be able to communicate um, so that we could see what she is thinking and we could have like a two-way conversation between Gollum and Shelob, for instance. Uh, that I would consider, but um, but I don't I don't see any need to have Shelob take a female form, uh, a human form, that is. Anyway, sorry, just need, I wanted to, uh, wanted to uh, uh, acknowledge that, talking about Ungoliant. Um, that was great. I enjoyed that. Thank you. Thank you. That was a good rant. Yeah. Good rant. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I try not to rant about that video game series, but which is why I don't talk <laughs> about it much. People, people will sometimes ask me on Twitter. They'll be like, "You should do like some episodes on that." I'm like, no, "Are you? Do you don't have any idea how ugly that would be if I did that?" Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's with the Peter Jackson adaptations. It's it's entirely possible to kind of dig a little bit and find some find some 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 core value there you know yeah uh the the those video games especially that the, the shadows of mordor the shadows of mordor yeah i mean lotro is a brilliant adaptation but the shadows of mordor just they they deliberately leave this the the like the entire ethos of the book completely behind i mean it's it is such a completely alternate universe that i can't even i have a hard time even connecting it with tolkien's world um yeah yeah but anyway um okay uh, let's uh, so okay back to uh, to Myron so okay so Ungoliant 
the idea that th- it was put forward that Melkor is going to want to find out what Ungoliant is up to, and this certainly seems true, right? He's just had a uh, he's just had a, a major issue with Ungoliant, right? Ungoliant fled when the Balrog showed up, um, but he's got to be thinking about it, right? Where is she? What is she up to? Is she coming back? Because he never gave her the Silmarils, right? And she wanted to eat them. Uh, so is she going to come back after the Silmarils? He's got to be worrying, you know, concerned about that. He's going to want to keep tabs on where Ungoliant is. Um, and given that Myron is the uh, clever dude, he's not going to send his thugs to go after Ungoliant, um, even though Gothmog is going to be all, you know, because he and his boys are the ones that took her out, right? Chased her off. So he's going to be all... Um, He's going to be all, all uh, uppity, right? Uh, and uh, good opportunity for taunting Myron because he's already won against Ungoliant once, right? So Myron has to go seek her out. Do we want him to find her? Do we do a Myron Ungoliant episode? I'm not sure we want to find her again. No. No. Because um, she, she, she. Does she get a mention at all? ever again from this point on um, in the, in, in, certainly not in the published Silmarillion right no we're just told that she goes into the south of the world and, and there at last in her utter, in, in her uttermost famine at last uh, uh, devours herself so um, yeah um, I do think we should check in with her later on and Nick that's exactly when we do it. Um, I totally agree with Nick Palazzo that we should fulfill the fantasy of early Tolkien and meet Ungoliant again during the um, voyage of Arendel. Yeah, uh, that we should perfect. Have. So he encounters her again, and we f- and that's when we meet Ungoliant starving, right? Star- yeah. Starving and uh, laying desperate plans to uh, try to ensnare the moon. Uh, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I like it. Yeah, that's great. That that can happen on the um, the the Arendelle uh, spinoff series. Oh, exactly. It, 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 we we can we can go as long as we like with the voyages of Arendelle. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, so he goes after and he he'll find her trail, and uh, so basically he'll go to Nandungorthab and find the spiders there, um, her mm-hmm. offspring. Yeah, Does I like he... I like the idea, and I don't think. Yeah, I mean, maybe um, if we're gonna if we want to send, I do. This does bring an interesting question. So we're asking, we're we're we're. The, I think this kind of the genesis of this discussion was sort of uh, how does Morgoth relate to the various bad guys? Maybe maybe Sauron's gonna get set, um, not so much exiled from Angband, but maybe Morgoth's gonna say like, hey. Uh, I need. I have some missions for you mm-hmm. uh, that involve sending him away. Right, right, right. And this is kind of the beginning of you know, like we see him later on. He's he's he. Um, most of what we see of Sauron is him operating um, not at Angband. Right, right. Um, True. He's at the he's at the Minas Tirith at one point. He's at um, uh, he's um, assaulting. Um, um, Baron's father's gang, mm-hmm. those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. This is when that starts. The, the, yes. the kind of 
the never-ending list of errands Sauron's running um, outside in Beleriand. Yes, Sauron being his lieutenant out in the field, Gothmog, his personal enforcer that he keeps with him, uh, and to lead his shock troops in battle. Yes. Um... Yes. So, so maybe um, when 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 does by the way when does speaking of Shelob um, when when does she appear when she, she here appear in this story maybe I, I think maybe this is it looking for Ungoliant and find Shelob I think so because um, he's gonna we we had talked about him allying himself that is Myron allying himself with the spiders um, and I think that this is um, I think that this is when and clearly, right, if we're going to have a spider character that he's going to interact with, it's got to be Sheila. I mean, what, what are we going to invent another spider character? Um, so, you know, having Sheila herself be present and involved uh, in the story is kind of cool, actually, to be able to do that and set her up for later on. Um, so that when we return, because she is a daughter of Ungoliant, exactly, Marie. I mean, we, we she would have been there. Um uh, even Sam remembers that Sheila would have been there, right? When uh, uh, you know he talks about the webs of horror uh, around uh, Gondolin. Um, so Robert says, "How will you distinguish it as Sheila?" Well, Robert, this then comes back to the point I was just making. Um, I think she needs to talk. She needs to be able to talk. I mean, I think that basically we can have Sheila not really be one of his inner circle, right? She doesn't join J- Draugluin and Thurin Gwethil, um and um, Tavildo, right? He he doesn't join. She she doesn't join them as his like you know companions and and primary captains. But she should be um, she should be his primary contact. She she should be the 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 one who who works with him and who is sort of the leader of the spiders. Um, so uh, I and I, I mean and how cool is that, right? You know, that this is Sauron forming an alliance with Shelob way back at this point in the story, so that she's still hanging out in his mountains uh, in, uh, in, in Mordor later on, right? I mean, establishing the Shelob-Sauron relationship, that's got to be cool. Um, yeah, but anyway, okay. Um, She's got to be able to talk. Do we have her talk, like, with a voice emerging from her mouth, or do we have her speak telepathically, or what do we do? Right in I her think web. We should give her a, um, pig. Um, I think we should give her a stylized female form, like from a video game. And yeah. Have I, why didn't I think of that? Yeah. No. We should. Yeah. No. Um, uh, okay, we have two votes for telepathic. <laughs> Robert Brown was just saying spell out words in her webs. Yeah, Robert, I was thinking of the same thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> some, she loves web. Some werewolf. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, so uh, telepathically, I can I, I can get behind telepathically. Um, I, I don't think we've done telepathic conversation, so it might be a little weird. But But hang on a second. The spiders in Mirkwood can talk. Right? So she should be able to talk. Right? I mean, unless we're going to ditch the spiders talking, but in which case we lose a lot of good dialogue. But um, if the spiders in Mirkwood can talk, she should be able to talk. I mean, the speech, 
The ability of speech of the spiders of Mirkwood should, apart from their still unusually large but greatly diminished size, be the thing that marks the spiders of Mirkwood as descendants of Ungoliant, right? Um, yeah. Several people want her not to be a very good speaker, right? She, she's not clever. She's not eloquent. Um, her speeches should be short and to the point. Uh, yeah, I could see that. I mean, again, she's not one of his counselors, right? She's not one of his captains. Um, she always, she's a free agent, right? I mean, we see that still in 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 the, in the Lord of the Rings, right? We see her being, um, uh, considering herself a free agent operating on her own um, and Sauron manipulating her and taking advantage of her presence, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So I think I, I I think that that works. I think that we can have her speak. I'm okay with her not being real articulate or forthcoming. Um, should we have them be in Nandungorthib, or should we have Sauron set them up in Nandungorthib? I think the latter, because I think the allegiance with his spiders should be part of his plan to invade Doriath. Um, And so he sets them up on the northern border, basically, of Doriath in Nandangorthab. So he could be the one who kind of collects them together, right? There are... um, Ungoliant wouldn't necessarily have settled down in one place... Um, she could have had several spider mates whom she ate um, uh, afterwards in a number of places, and he can kind of gather them together. Um, yeah. <laughs> Drowglewin as sheepdog to spiders. Yeah. yeah. Sauron rounding up uh, giant spiders, right, in a get-along little doggies moment, right? Yeah, and a uh, little... Uh, little Little spider lariat, yeah, yeah, uh huh, um, yeah, no. So Nick, exactly. He wants to try and envelop the whole girdle in a strangling web, right? So um, establishing them in a permanent residence in the mountains, uh, there to the north of of Doriath, is basically what happens when the girdle goes up, right? He's gonna he's gonna try to web them around, and then the girdle goes up, and uh, and and the spiders get driven out from other places, but they they remain in those. Uh, inhospitable mountains, right? Okay. Uh, running out of time, but last big question. What about the uh, orc project? How do we want the orc project to be? Did we ever make decisions about that? I remember kicking the can on that a whole bunch of times. In fact, as I recall, that was the subject in which the phrase kick the can became in common usage in some film project. Um, uh what decision is it we need to make about it? I want to make sure, did we decide where orcs come from? Did we show uh, that happening? I don't know. Did we ever decide? I don't think we decided that. I think we might have still left that vague. Didn't we still leave that vague? We had elf prisoners, right? And we had Myron interacting with elf prisoners. We had a sort of a laboratory. Um, we did more or less decide, Marie? 
Somebody remind me what we decided. That was so long ago, I can't possibly be expected to remember things like that. Um, so we did have elves being tortured, so we decided to go with the with the published Silmarillion and route. Even, and, even if we, and even if we did, we reserved the right to uh, overturn that decision and, yeah, uh, and require rewrites. We do. Absolutely. Um, okay. I remember suggesting that Morgoth comes in and he, he takes over the project and pushes the orcs in a totally different direction. It is him who comes in and makes the orcs into basically vessels of hatred, right? Uh, and aggression. That wouldn't necessarily yeah, have been Myron's plan. Wasn't Myron's plan was more of a, a, uh, a slow, steady persuasion of them to his point of view. Yeah, he was trying conversion at first. Conversion slash, like, improvement, right? Um, you know, had he had his way, they would have been... Um, you know, he wasn't necessarily just making... Right, exactly. Murray says he was trying to brainwash worshippers for Melkor. Right, exactly. So he was making supporters for himself, but he wasn't just going to make them thugs. He wasn't going to make them brutal, aggressive, and full of hatred and rage. Um, Morgoth coming back, um, right, Marie says they still look like elves. Yes. Um, so he's not even necessarily physically torturing them so much as, again, it's yeah, it's like brainwashing. So he has them in a, a like, a, a, a psychological regimen, right? He has them uh, undergoing this sort of brainwashing thing where they will become... Uh, worshippers of Melkor and supporters of himself, which of course you could see over time shifting to becoming worshippers of himself, right? Um, mm-hmm. We know that Sauron is into the getting worshippers for himself thing. That's a thing that he does in many cultures, right? With the uh, many of the human cultures and stuff. So um, Morgoth comes back angry. Marie, exactly. He's very ticked off when he returns and he pours his own aggression and pain because he is in pain from his hand uh, into the orcs um, and that changes them. So Tony says, what accounts for the physical change? Is it a gradual evolution or a magical deformation? I say the latter. I say he does something. Morgoth does something to them. He, he, he alters them. Um, which of course we have precedent for, right? With the Balrogs in season one uh, and their immersion in fire uh, and their um, emergence as uh, uh, as the the shadow and flame things that they are um, we had talked about Bulldog um, I don't know if you remember Bulldog Dave from the uh, from the Lays of Beleriand and, you know, he's this like huge orc captain, this like mega orc captain um, who gets some play in the early uh, the early Silmarillion materials so it gets dropped later on. Um, so we had yeah, talked about uh, yes. introducing Bulldog as a character. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we talked about I- introducing Bulldog as a character who is basically um, uh, he's basically one of Gothmog's allies, right? But he's he's like a, you know, just like a thuggish spirit, but he becomes like the the proto-orc, the, the, the like great goblin figure among the orcs. Um, so, uh, he's essentially 
we would be treating him essentially as like the archetypal orc, right? Like the king of the the king of all the orcs, um, which means we have to give Bulldog a really uh, important and fitting ending uh, somewhere along the line. Battle of Unnumbered Tears, Fall of Gondolin. We could kill him in the Fall of Gondolin. Uh, so we're deciding how long we want him to last. No, I'm just trying to decide when he dies because he's got to die. I mean, he can't, you know, he he can't stick around forever. Um, he's not going to survive, how long, obviously. How long lived? How long lived are the orcs? Great question. Nobody knows. Because if he's the proto orc and he lasts until the fall of Gondlin, yeah. But he's different. Like by proto, he's not just the first of the orcs in the sense of like chronologically the first one to be formed. Um, yeah. He is a greater uh, spirit. I mean, he's he he, he is Maya. Um, so oh, okay, okay, okay. I yeah. see, I see. So all he, right, so so he can last that long. Um. Yeah. Ooh. Hakan suggests that Bulldog be killed by Glamdring, right? Hakan, this thus setting up the parallel with uh, the killing of the Great Goblin by Gandalf in The Hobbit. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I like that. Um, yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, uh, so, by the way, Mike, answer to the question. Are orcs immortal? Are you know are orcs long lived since they come from elves? My answer is no, no, they're not. Um, <laughs> I don't have any backing for that, <laughs> but I, uh, um, I, um, uh, here's what I'm thinking though, Muriel puts forth much of her own spirit into her son Feanor in order to make him great. And she therefore damages herself, thereby damages herself, right? I think that Morgoth establishes the orcs along the same kind of pattern. Um, because he doesn't need immortal foot soldiers, because they're, they're cannon fodder anyway. He doesn't want he doesn't want orc immortality that serves him no purpose. What he wants is orcish fecundity, right? He wants them to multiply. So I think that the the spirit, uh, like the, the, the resource of spirit that they have is dispersed in having many, many, many children. Um, but, anyway. Uh, because the orcs have to multiply like crazy. Um, yeah. Um, anyway, okay. Uh, Brianna says, isn't Bolg pretty, uh, old in the text? Mm, kinda. I mean, he's not older than Thorin. Um, so, I mean, in fact, he's probably younger than Tor- than Thorin, because Thorin at least was at the Battle of Azanul Bazar, and Bolg does not seem to have been. Um, so... Uh, 
So yeah, no, I don't think there's the the the, the passage everybody always cites when they want to suggest that orcs are immortal is the conversation between Shagrat and Gorbag where they're talking about the great siege and acting as if they remember uh, the uh, um, you know the the siege of Mordor by the last alliance. Um, I uh, right the bad old days exactly. Um, I I'm not convinced that that's what Tolkien was going for there. I mean I think it's just uh, orcs have an oral tradition. Right, uh, and uh, and they in their oral tradition. Uh, that is to say, I think that that conversation is explic- is easily explicable by oral tradition, um, rather than by longevity. Um, but anyway, anyway, um, um, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to worry about it. And as for them, as for the goblins recognizing Orcrist and Glamdring on sight, Nick, that's a Hobbit issue. I, you know, that's a. Um, like hashtag fairy tale problems, right? I mean, it's not that happens at a time when the Hobbit is not at all. It's not even part of the Middle Earth world. Like, so there is no call to think to. Like, I don't think that that can even be used as evidence, frankly, because it is part of a conception that predates that story even being connected into Middle Earth. So, um, so I mean, I don't really make anything anything of that. Um, but um, anyway. Anyway, sorry. Okay. Um, but I don't think we have to handle this. I mean, I don't, I don't think it has to come up. I don't think we need to discuss that in exposition. So Morgoth comes in and he takes over the Orc project, and there's a dramatic moment, right, when they are twisted. Um, now, what's Bulldog's role there? If Bulldog is a Maya, he's gonna... What? Take Bulldog... What, does he take Bulldog as a model? Does he first twist Bulldog and then say, yeah, I want more of this? Um, how does that work with Bulldog? Hmm. Uh, because if he's going to, if Bulldog is pre, if he's choosing Bulldog, there's to be a reason. Right, Bulldog has to distinguish himself in some way before Morgoth is... I mean, why should Morgoth choose this random Maya and be like, yeah, let's model an entire race of creatures after this dude? Um, um, I mean, maybe he... he um, was he involved in the... Like, maybe he gets put in charge of the initial like when when Morgoth comes in and displaces Myron sends him right. out on his field for field work right maybe maybe uh, maybe bulldog was his was his like his his lieutenant or his assistant on the project and so he takes over and then he he's the one that ends up deciding to pattern the orcs after himself maybe he's an afterthought maybe Morgoth makes the orcs first and then he's looking for somebody to be permanently attached to them, right? Somebody to be, like, the chief orc. Um, uh-huh. Maybe even, like, he sort of wryly offers that to Sauron, and Sauron politely declines. Um, so when he pulls Bulldog, he's pulling somebody who is kind of random, right? Who only emerges to prominence when he's selected to be the head of the orcs, rather than being there first and Morgoth deciding to do things after him or to... Or to, you know, so... Yeah, that works better, I think. 
That works better, I think. First, he makes the orcs. He takes over the orc project. And Sauron is the one who's in charge of the orcs, right? He, it's, it's been his project, Sauron's project. Um, so maybe in a kind of a, in a, kind of a mocking uh, acknowledgement of that, like, oh, you still wanted to be in charge of these guys? Like, okay, I can, you know, I can make, I, I can make that happen. And Myron's like, no, I'm good. And then he's so, he takes Bulldog, who is, he can be a random Maya at that point. He's not distinguished himself until he becomes the head of the orcs. And then we can have him do, by the way, what other things are we going to give to Bulldog? Like, what else is he going to do? I mean, the only thing is mentioned uh, in the in the old, but he doesn't get that much play. He's important. It's We're told that he's important, but we don't see him doing much, other than he's the one who is going to attack Doriath in order to try to, uh, in order to try to capture Luthien. Um, so he's in the Baron and Luthien story. Um, yeah, yeah. He is brought in to kill uh, to kill Barahir's band, which means he'd be working under Sauron. Ooh, Tony, yes, very good. Uh, Tony Mead says he should be the one who kills Denethor. Yeah, yeah, good, good. Yeah, he's the one who slaughters the Green Elves. Like it. Yeah, so we have an accomplishment for him. Um, Yep, that totally that that's that's right up Bulldog Street, uh, slaughtering the green elves. Absolutely, good, good, good. Like it. Yeah. All right. Um, now is that is this related? Like, is this the thing that qualifies him to be uh, explained? Um, uh, to or or, or, or uh, explain. Uh, is this the thing that qualifies him to be attached to the orcs in some way, or is this already occurred? It's already occurred. He so th- this is his first like success and accomplishment as the king of the orcs, basically. Um, well, he shouldn't be called king. Obviously, Morgoth is the king, but um, uh, but you know he's the he's the he's the 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 leader of the orcs in the field. And, of course, if we have him, and I particularly like that, Tony, because if we have him um, in the south down there fighting the Green Elves, that means he is in Sauron's theater of war, right down in the southern part in the Beleriand end, which, if we are going to have him be the one who uh, kills Barahir and his band, um, then, uh, uh, then you know, that's we have him working already under Sauron there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I like it. I like it. That'll work. Um, then we have, of course, Bulldog and Bulldog's position in the um, whole Gothmog-Sauron rivalry thing, you know, where both of them will be trying to sort of... He, he's going to become essentially a pawn in that game. He's not. He's going to be another rival, um, but he is going to be potentially a pawn in that game. So, um, okay. All right. That'll work. That'll work. Okay, well, I think we should, I think that's good. We didn't map it out in detail, um, but I, I think we have a we have, we have a lot to work with. A suggestion that I would make to the um, uh, to to uh, to our folks on the discussion boards um, is you might want to be thinking in some of those terms, right? You might want to be thinking about a list of things we definitely want to portray and thinking about where we might connect them. Um, on, in their episodes um, so that we can have that mapped out. That would be really helpful. Um, so if you guys want to work on a, an outline, we don't have to have them in every single episode necessarily, um, but to make sure that we have the overall plot and some places where we can pin that and where we can fit that into into appropriate ways with the rest of the story. Um, 
uh, which uh, which works. Ooh, Nick suggests that Sauron can already have been pulled from the southern campaign, leaving Bulldog in charge, which is why Thingol comes out with a narrow victory in that battle. Um, yeah, possibly, or at least, at least like that side of things, Sauron leaves to him. Yeah, possibly we can have so that it's not Sauron who loses. Sauron is able to scape, scapegoat Bulldog for his less than total success in the south. Right, 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 quite possible. Okay. All right. So let's talk about next time. Next time we are moving on to episode one. We're going to do our first discussion of, of an episode. We'll be doing episode one. Episode one, of course, is the Rebellion of the Noldor. So we will be doing Feanor and his speech by torchlight. Into, so uh, uh, Feanor is going to break his banishment, and he's going to return to Tyrion, and he's going to give his speech. And I'm assuming that we're going we're gonna to end with the oath, right? So the oath of Theonor is going to be included here. Um, lots of things to talk about. Um, I have, um, oops, sorry, I have three particular questions that I want to make sure that we're thinking about. I would love to have people's input before we talk about this. First, how are we going to handle Nerdanel? We had talked about Nerdanel, Theonor's wife, as uh, like the, the, they're going to they're going to separate. They're going to become estranged, right? She is going to speak against him um, and is going to end up staying in Valinor. So how do we want to handle that? How do we want to make that? Is she going to stand up and make counter speeches? Is she going to be doing something else? How, how is she going to handle that? Um, uh, what is her role going to be in the scene? What's she going to do when her sons all swear the oath, right? I mean, we got to think about that as well. Um, their relationship to mom, whom they're basically leaving behind at that point. Um, but then also Galadriel, this is a big decision. Right? What's Galadriel going to do? In other words, it is time for us decide to decide which Galadriel we're going to be talking about. Right? I mean, if you've read Unfinished Tales, you know Tolkien rethought this several times. Um, in the published Silmarillion, we still have the version where Galadriel is kind of keen to go along with Fanor. Right? She thinks the same way as Fanor. Um, in later versions, he decided that she was going to be like the center of anti. Uh, uh, anti-Fanor opposition to the point where she was going to stay behind and go off to Middle-earth entirely on her own and separately um, from Fanor. So, how do we want to handle Galadriel? What's she going to do? And how is she going to do it? So we have to decide the main trajectory of Galadriel's character at this point. It's a big deal. Um, And then my third question is, who else should participate? We've got a lot of elf characters, right, that we were developing over the course of Season 2. Almost everybody's going to be present. Obviously, you know, we, we don't want to uh, get to, you know, to diffuse the action among too many characters. But who needs to play a role, and how should we handle the other characters? Which ones uh, should play a role? Um, uh, so, okay. So that, those are my questions for next time. Uh, looking forward to discussing that. It's going to be two weeks uh, from today, um, so we'll be moving towards the, uh, the 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 latter part of uh, of August. Here will be what August twenty fifth is uh, going to be our next uh, our next session. Uh, any final questions or thoughts from you, Dave? Anything else you want to add that uh, uh, we should have people thinking about prior to episode one? Uh, well, um, what um, what what what's what's our um, what is our uh, frame story? elements going to be for this. Right, the frame story element was uh, Estelle's initial rebellion against his mom and Elrond um, yeah. uh, in Rivendell, right? So we have to we'll, so, we'll have him complaining, yep. Yeah, let's think about how that gets portrayed and yeah. how um, you know, what what's the spark? Like, I, I think we agreed that 
that there's going to be news that Sauron has returned and, and announced himself? Like how 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 um, how do we portray that? How does that news arrive? And yes. How does um, Estelle react to it? Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah, we can think about that a little bit more. Um, good. 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 I like it. All right. Thanks very much, everybody. Thanks for joining us, and uh, I will be. I will be back soon. For those of you watching the Twitch channel, I'll be back in about five minutes. Uh, it's time for the adventures of Grifflet. Uh, but um, uh, for everybody else, thanks very much uh, for joining us. Uh, so thanks for listening, and Godspeed.